Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts, getting hammered with Hammer. I am Jinx, your co-host, and unlike the main Scream Addicts show where I invite on creatives in horror and they choose a single horror film for us to talk about, getting hammered with Hammer finds myself and co-host Paul Farrell doing commentaries on Hammer films while playing drinking games and getting steadily more inebriated as the film wears on. Last time, we covered Curse of Frankenstein, and it being Paul's choice that episode, we elected to drink some truly terrible beer. Paul, haven't really gotten an apology from you yet. Well, I'm not sorry, is is the thing. Um, I feel that the drink was delicious and, and really, really worked well in the context of the film. So it did. we're just at an impasse with that one. <laughs> how's it going, man? What's up? Uh, it's what going up good, to? How's, uh, how's this week been for you? Uh, it's been a little hectic, uh, but I'm excited to be back here at the mic uh, with a new drink in hand and a new Hammer movie to talk about. Yeah, well, we're we're gonna talk about that new drink, blah ha 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 ha. But uh, all right, since we are tackling Hammer Horror in somewhat, you know, a bit of an order, uh, this week we're gonna be following up Curse of Frankenstein with 1958's Horror of Dracula, also known in the UK as Dracula. And the whole team is back on this one. Uh, director Terrence Fisher, writer Jimmy Sangster, stars Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Paul, I'm excited. How about you? I'm pretty pumped uh, to follow up. Uh, Curse of Frankenstein with Horror of Dracula, or as you said, Dracula. Um, I think uh, I think this is another great example of what Hammer does best, and sort of a, a proving ground for what they would become. Absolutely. All right. So this week was my choice. Knowing that you don't like hard liquor that much, and seeing as how yeah. I owe you some payback for last week, I was sure. seriously considering just doing shots of whiskey or Dear moonshine God. for this episode. <laughs> but I didn't. But I didn't. I, Sorry, I just it's coming. It's coming one oh, week. Good just, lord. You know, okay. You keep it up with the beer. I'm just going to well, get worse every week from here on out. We'll see what kind of beer I throw at you then. If that's if that's if this is going to become a war. Sorry, I'm throwing you off your game. Keep going. If, if I don't kill you dead by Frankenstein creating woman, I will have failed. So, uh, you know, but I didn't, we'll I see. didn't choose any of that stuff. I just, uh, you know, instead I decided to go with something called a red comet. I don't actually think that's what it's called because I've looked up red comets online and they, they sure as hell aren't these, but the person who introduced me to this drink called them red comets. So red comets, they shall be for folks playing along at home and keep in mind, we'll be posting the alcohol. We'll be imbibing in advance over on the scream addicts, Twitter page. That's at scream addicts in advance of every new episode dropping. But for you folks, a recipe. Now, what you got to do is take a good Long Island iced tea mix. I always use Captain Morgan's. I always avoid TGI Fridays. And you throw in enough grenadine to turn the concoction a nice shade of red. Blood red for this movie about vampires. Now, don't go overboard. The grenadine is practically pure sugar. Uh, but, you know, put enough in there so you can taste it. Uh, you can also throw it in a blender and make an iced red comet, which is uh, just fantastic as well. And uh, as for the drinking game that we're going to be playing, Paul, I'm going to be keeping it real simple this week. Almost, uh, okay. almost deceptively simple <laughs> okay. a little scared the laugh is not voting well in my eyes i don't even need to text you the rules on this it's so simple are you ready i'm ready so now you're gonna take a drink a decent sized drink you don't have to take in like a half a glass at a time but neither still should you be trying to get away with like a sip all right i'm i'm talking about a damn drink people <laughs> okay take a, okay take a drink every time take a drink <laughs> Take a I'll drink every time one of the following things happen. Okay. Anytime you see blood on screen, anytime right. somebody says the name Dracula, 
Okay. And now, I kid you not, unexpected but true, here's the atom bomb. Okay. Anytime somebody walks up or down some stairs. Oh, no. That, that's it. <laughs> Three things. Are you ready? Oh, good Lord. Blood. Yes, Dracula I got stairs. it. Blood Dracula stairs. Now, Paul, people probably okay. have a handful of options as to where they can find Horror Dracula to watch. Why don't you tell mm -hmm. them about how we're watching it this evening? Okay, so unlike last week, uh, where we each had different copies uh, running at different frame rates, uh, which made for some very entertaining back and forth, like uh, we're each watching. Yeah, <laughs> we are each watching the exact same copy, uh, queued up to the same second, and we are watching Warner Archives Blu-ray release of of the film, uh, which is from uh, late twenty uh, eighteen. I think was when they put it out. Maybe. Late 2018, early 2019, um, and it's a restoration uh, that they did, and it is gorgeous. Um, easily the best the film has looked, uh, so highly recommend acquiring this particular copy. Absolutely. It is, it is, I watched it earlier today and it's beautiful. I've, I've only had like airings on the sci-fi channel when I was a kid and that 2002 DVD to go from. So this Blu-ray is one hell of a nice. step up. So, uh, yeah. okay. Now, regardless of how you're watching out there, all you need to do to watch along is go to the very first frame of the film. You should just start to be able to see the uh, yellow letters of Universal International peeking through. Uh, now on this Blu-ray, it's going to be at second. Paul, what did we say? Second 19? Uh, yes. Second 19. All right. Now we're going to do a countdown. I'm going to do three, two, one, then we're all going to press play. So, all right, here we go. Ready in three, two, one, play. Here we go. And away we go. I'm giddy. I can't wait. It's that universal logo. It's fantastic. Which, uh, which, oh God, which Mystery Science Theater uh, 3000 was it where they pointed out? They were like, isn't the fact that it's universal also cover the fact that it's international, you know? <laughs> I don't remember the episode, but I do remember the joke. Peter Cushing. <laughs> and Dracula, you know what? The title card, I believe, has only ever been Dracula, which, uh, I don't know. It just seems wrong. Well, I, but, thought, uh, I thought the, uh, the wasn't there a, a, an alternate title card for like the u.s the original like u.s release like before they restored it in 2012 or something for the dvd i think they reinstated the uh dracula title card but i think before that i think it did have a horror of dracula insert oh they did i didn't know that i think i i was i saw a vhs of it that i thought had it and i was reading i was trying to see like if if that was always the case because i know the reason they changed it was to just obviously like dip, differentiate it because wasn't um Bella Lugosi's Dracula, like, still showing in theaters at the was time. Right? Like, they I were mean, still... Damn, that would be... I, like, I they, would, the re, they would rerun it. Like, they would bring it back to theaters a lot. Um, had legs. Like Universal would. But, um... Right. This is a gorgeous-looking castle. Now, Paul, it is 1958. Yes. Horror of Dracula yes. arrives in the wake of Curse of Frankenstein's success. And by this point, there have been one. There have been like, uh, da -da -da, like three film adaptations of Bram Stoker's novel by this point. There was uh, Count Nosferatu. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, like as you mentioned, there was the Bela Lugosi, the Universal film. There was the Spanish yeah. production uh, yes. of the Universal film. There was like a Turkish production called uh, Dracula Istanbul or something, which I've never seen and I really want to. Paul, get ready for your first drink here in five. Do I have to drink because it says Dracula? Like, nope, oh no, nope, we don't have okay. to do that. But ready, ready for it? Ready, here it comes. Yeah. Ah, there we go. 
Blood, uh, people. No. Take a drink. Take a drink, drink. Nope. God, these are fantastic. Paul, what do you think? Uh, it, it's, it's good. It's that's, a little sweet. It's not the enthusiasm I was looking for. It doesn't have any hops. There's no hops. Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's not as, not as bitter, but hey, you know. <laughs> now, right. okay. No, so, I, like it. I like it. It's good. So we had all those you previous right. movies. Yeah, good. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, better than you did me, sir, because that beer was well, I'm, I'm never forgiving you for that. Uh, um, <laughs> okay, so we have those movies. We have like 200 Dracula films after this. So I wanted to ask, how does yeah. this particular Dracula rank for you both? You know, both as a film, but also as a portrayal of that character. How how does horror of Dracula stack up for you, and how does Christopher Lee rank against every other Drac for you? Yeah, um, so I, and I'm a big fan of the Dracula iterations. Um, Lee is probably my favorite. Um, nice. For a couple different reasons. Uh, this particular film is also one of my favorites. One thing I really like about it, and I don't want to jump ahead, but I really like how Sangster condensed the story. Oh my god. He was really good at that. Um he was really good at taking like a book or you know a known mythology and sort of condensing it and simplifying it, cutting out characters. Like already the film is sort of differentiated. We don't really have a Renfield character. Um we've got Harker sort of going to and again, I guess this is jumping ahead a tiny, tiny bit, but like going to sort of kill Dracula, you know, as opposed to sell him Carfax Abbey. Um, you Steps, know, so there's drink. Oh, son of a bitch. And a big drink too, right? You know, let me take sip. No sip, sir. Good Lord. Um, so anyway, I, 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 it immediately made it more interesting to watch because I'd seen the story play out so much. So the small changes and the way he played with the existing characters made it a more entertaining watch um, and made it a little more surprising. You weren't sure what was going to happen, but it still stayed true to what I think is like the tone and sort of heart of the story. Um, and then and we're about Steps. to meet him. I think. God damn it. <laughs> um, you asked about Lee's Dracula. I, I mean, Lee just brings a command and a seriousness and, dare I say it, a sexuality to the character that just I, I don't think was present before this movie. Um, and I know there's a lot written about that and a lot of people talk about it and Lee himself talks about it. Um, but he just commands the screen whenever he's on. Um, and that's impressive how how much of an impression he makes because... What it's like Freddy Krueger. He's got like seven minutes of screen time, right? Like he's only on the, he's only in the movie for like a total of like seven minutes. Yeah, he's like Hannibal Lecter. Like we know the movie yeah. is about him, and yet it's not really you know because he's on screen for that amount of time. And I right. agree with you about them bringing a sexuality to him, and that's something that infuses the entire story. I think in a way that you know the the mere handful of adaptations hadn't really done up until that point, and probably couldn't have. I don't know that yeah. any of the film productions before 1950. Honestly, it's probably surprising that that you know they got away with what they did in 1958. And some of it is really interesting, and some of it is uh, a little icky. And uh, we'll talk about that later on, certainly too. But I also agree yeah. with you about Jimmy Sangster. I, I I think that guy is like the unsung hero of Hammer at times. You know, Terrence Fisher yeah. obviously directed some of the very best films, but I think Sangster 
and his work with these movies, like telling these grand tales, but also doing them in under 90 minutes and yet still, you know, nailing the necessities of the story. I, I just, I, yeah, I got to hand it to a script. It, it, the movie tells the essential tale, but it just, it moves like a bat out of hell. Like it, it moves a damn sight faster than the universal film, which even though I love it, you know, that movie does tend to drag from time to time, you know? And I think Sangster was yeah. a hell of a writer when he was given the time to be just that, you know, from what I've read, I, uh, <laughs> I still want to pick up his biography someday, uh, which is the, it has the best title ever, which is, uh, do you want it good or Tuesday? Um, <laughs> <laughs> And honestly, I, I, I need to pick that up ASAP. But yeah, I, I agree with you on him, too. And I, it's funny. I think Lee is probably my favorite Dracula, but that's based solely on his performance here and a couple of the later entries, which we'll eventually get to. But, you know, there are, sure. there are movies, you know, Satanic Rites, you know, you can tell that he's kind of over it by that point. Uh, even Dracula, Prince of Darkness, apparently he was so disgusted with the screenplay and the dialogue that he was given that he just refused to say any of the lines and he runs around for 90 minutes hissing at people. Uh, you know, you can't really <laughs> say that those performances yeah, stack stairs. up. I yeah. There were fucking stairs. There were, oh, wait for it. We're, we're taking two back. Oh, this is the big reveal. This is the first time we, we see Mr. Jacob. And this is uh, one of the only lines he has. Again, he's only on the screen for a little bit and he has very little dialogue. Count I don't right. know how exactly how many lines, but he so doesn't have two, many. That's two drinks, Paul. Oh, God. God damn it. Hold on. <laughs> hmm. But just his expression, the way he carries himself. There's and he a... doesn't play creepy. Which I no. love about it. He plays the ingratiating host. He yeah. plays just a normal guy, which is what a vampire would be. As much as I love Bela Lugosi, and it's going to sound like I'm bashing Bela Lugosi in regards to how I feel about Christopher Lee as this character, but Bela Lugosi plays that character as creepy with a capital C. Yes. And a vampire wouldn't do that, you wouldn't think. A vampire would want to hide. He would want to appear much like Lee does here. He's just a he's, he's a nice host. He greeted well, think... his guest warmly. Yeah, and I think that's a product of the time, too. You know, we were coming out of a time when horror film was just more exaggerated. You know, sound was new, you know, stairs. so like dialogue and acting and all that stairs, damn it. But um, I think uh, Adam Bond. Mm, there's a whole lot of stairs. Um, <laughs> man, oh, man. Losing my train of thought already. Uh, I, well, I also think that, like, uh, Christopher Lee talked a lot about how he didn't he he says he had never seen any of the other Dracula movies. So he had no benchmark to compare his performance to. And he just read the the, the book. He just went to the book, read it and played the characters. He he wanted to be as true to the book as is possible. So his goal was to create the most accurate rendition. And his biggest regret with all of these roles was that he felt like Hammer never realized the novel. He was always upset that they didn't adhere to the novel more. And like you mentioned, he progressively got more and more upset. Like he hated, I think he even said like none of them were good scripts to your point. Um, Prince of darkness, which is a beloved movie. It's one of the more popular ones. Uh, he hated the script so much. He didn't read it, but actually I are, I think it makes the movie better. I actually think he's really interesting. That he doesn't speak because he feels more animalistic because that's the first time he's resurrected after he dies. So, like, it feels like he's a different version of his character because he died. So I think the fact that he doesn't have dialogue really helps that film for me. Um, but it's funny that it came out of him despising the script. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I got to admit, as much of a Hammer and Lee fan and Dracula fan as I am, like, I, I'm not a big fan of Prince of Darkness. I'm not a big fan of uh, Satanic Rites. All of the others, I, I can find something to like about them. But those, I mm-hmm. I don't know. I, but I love, I adore Horror of Dracula. Weirdly enough, my favorite, um, actually my favorite Hammer film tied with Frankenstein Created Woman is uh, the sequel to this, which is Brides of Dracula, which yes. doesn't oh, actually feature Dracula or Lee. And it was yeah. just announced today, we're going to date this episode a little bit, but it was just announced <clears> that Scream <throat> Factory is putting out Brides of Dracula in a, uh, a yeah. spiffy new special edition Blu-ray, which I cannot wait for because that movie is perfect. Yes, I can't wait for that too. And I actually think that movie is also one of the best. And um, it also speaks to how I think that this is like a proto slasher. Because, <laughs> like <laughs> in most slasher series, there's at least one entry where the main killer isn't in it, you know, or like, you know, because like oh Jason my God. has the fifth Brides one, of Dracula you know, is like... the Friday Five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, he, he has, Friday. he set up all these different like things that were eventually played out in Friday the 13th, like how all the movies don't really have continuity except for how he died in the previous movie that always comes back, but they don't really pay attention to much else. Just little things like that. Um, and here's where they sort of reveal that, um, uh, Jonathan's here to kill Dracula. And in the previous scene, they also, there was another change where he's, uh, engaged to Lucy instead of Mina. Right. Like in the in the book and other iterations. So we're starting to pick up on subtle differences, which the first time I watched this movie really engaged me because I'm like, wait, Lucy. And and then when he's writing this entry where he's talking about taking Dracula out, I'm like, oh, wow. OK, so he already knows that God, this guy's a vampire shot. and, you know, he's here to hunt him. So I'm like, this is a very different movie than you expect going in. It's also not Transylvania, right? Like it's it's just a nearby village to where they live. So they've kind of completely changed the geography of the, of the story as well. Yeah. Completely doing away with the, uh, the Demeter subplot, which, uh, yeah, which is one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the book, which so rarely gets any sort of love, uh, in, in the film adaptations, but right. And it, it I get why they got rid of it. I mean, obviously saying, like you said earlier, a lot of why Sangster did this stuff was for budget constraints. Um, and to just hasten up the story to make it uh, tight, you know, more tightly done. But I would love to see a really fully realized. There was going to be a film, a big budget studio film, I think in the 2000s, um, called The Demeter. And it was just a whole movie about that boat trip. It, it was literally, and it had like a decent director. I forgot. I read all about it at one point. So I was really fascinated by it. But they I were going to make a actually, movie. yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, that would be really cool. If it was done well, you could make a great, like, almost like an aquatic horror movie without an aquatic monster. <laughs> um, you know, like, you could use a lot of those tropes um, uh, and just keep it on a boat. But god damn you with these stairs. Uh, you know, we talked about it in our last commentary, but again, all of these sequences, uh, the way they use lighting to create depth of field is just breathtaking um these sets and how they're realized and how they come alive um really blow me away paul i hear one hell of a storm on your end yes i apologize um there's a little bit of background noise (laughs) uh there is a crazy storm raging outside so if uh oh sorry 
No, you're fine. I just wanted to point out that the movie we're talking about, which I do remember being discussed forever, apparently it is, uh, it's been in and out of uh, production or pre-production for like two decades, but uh, it looked like David Slade, who did 30 Days of Night, had it at one point, and now it's looking like Andre Overdahl, who did, um, oh God, um, oh, I love the movie too, uh, son of a bitch, what is it called? Um, not Scary Stories, even though Overdahl directed that, um. Fucking hell. I've not had this much to drink, so I can't blame it on that. Uh, the Autopsy of Jane Doe. Um, oh, yeah, that was really good. But he, uh, he now is apparently attached to direct it. It's called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. So, yeah, that, I thought that sounded great. I mean, you know, if you look at the original novel, if you wanted to be really faithful to that, you could get an entire film trilogy out of that one novel. It yep. breaks cleanly into three fully realized stories. Uh, but, you know, who knows if they would ever do that. But how cool would that be? Wasn't this what? one the first? Oh, God damn it. Oh, he's so terrifying, by the way. In those close-up shots. Well, you mentioned he was animalistic in Prince of Darkness. He is like mm-hmm. an animal in this when he changes. I mean, look at oh, him. Oh, he flips. Yeah, and the, the contact lenses, which, as is the case in all old horror movies where people had to wear contact lenses, Christopher Lee hated them. He said they're incredibly painful, and uh, he couldn't see. But yeah, his the presence he has when he's angry, this is just... I actually like the blocking of this, too. Yeah, which is entirely oh different God. from the yeah. fight in the same hall at the end of the film, you know, and they yeah, both look gorgeous. Ways, but... Yeah, and the lighting is just so great. The can- the single candle and, like, the shadows on the walls. Everything's so atmospheric. I mean, Terrence Fisher, I think, you know, I talked about Jimmy Sangster being the undersigned hero. I think Fincher's, or Fincher, I think Fisher certainly, oh, stairs. God damn it. I just poured another one, by the way. Woohoo! Just letting you know. I'm drinking out of a wine glass, though, so it's not like a huge... Oh, come on. All right, but he, you know, he displays such a knack for creating atmosphere in these films and crafting, you know, as you've noted, like, some absolutely gorgeous images with a relatively small budget. I think with this movie, it was something like 80,000 pounds, they said, and this is an even better-looking film than Curse of Frankenstein. Every frame of this movie could be a painting, and every frame is worth putting in a frame, and... I mean, my God, would you have, would Tim Burton have a career were it not for these movies, I wonder? Well, that's a good point. And I think the difference too between, and I I don't want to like shit on Tim Burton, but I think a big difference between like, no, I love Burton too. Um, Well, I like Burton to to a certain point in his career. Uh, But I think a big difference between Burton and Fisher is like, when you're watching a Tim Burton film, the style is like a almost a part of the narrative, right? Like it's so loud and I'm not, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think like the, the loudness and overtness of his style is like almost a character in the movie. Um, Whereas when you're watching Fisher, his style is just as striking, but it, I think more accents his narratives and bolsters them than feels like something that's drawing your attention away from the story. I agree. I agree. And yet I would say, you know, out of any 
director working today, you know, if you were really going to revive Hammer, and it, Hammer has been revived, and we've had a handful of movies over mm-hmm. the course of the yeah. last, what, eight years, and I've I've liked quite a few of them, actually. I really love The Woman in Black, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's good. sequel. You know, I Wakewood is really interesting. A lot of people hated the quiet ones. I actually thought it was pretty neat. Uh, not great, but you know, cool. I'm not a fan of the resonant, which I think was the first one to kick it off. And why would you kick off a hammer? You know, sort of redo with that. But you know, whatever. You know, I had Christopher Lee in it, so I think that's kind of cool. But out of any modern director you could choose to really relaunch Hammer, the Hammer that we know and love, you know, from the uh, the late '50s, '60s, '70s. I visually, I would say Burton, well, maybe Guillermo del Toro. Uh, after watching say Crimson del Toro Peak, jumps but, to mind, yeah. But you know, looking at Burton's Sleepy Hollow and uh, Sweeney Todd, what oh, is sure. Sweeney Todd except a Hammer musical? You know, um, yeah, yeah. I, I really wanted Dark Shadows to to be like, oh, you said Dracula in his diary. But... Okay. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, man, but uh, Burton, to me, like, when he sets his mind to it, like, his visual style, I think, is just absolutely stunning. And, you know, I, I think he did an interview once where he said that uh, he wouldn't know a good script if it bit him in the ass, and I believe him. But when he, <laughs> when he is paired with a good script, like, my God. Like, Sleepy Hollow, to me, is one of the best Hammer movies ever made that just happens mm-hmm. to not be a Hammer film. No, I, I adore Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I think Sleepy Hollow is wonderful. Um, and I don't think it's no, a I mistake think... that he had Christopher Lee in that. I think that was the first time he worked with Christopher Lee. And it's yeah. like, well, of course Lee is in this, you know? Yeah. I, I think Burton was at his best when he was telling more odd, like stories that were as odd as his style is. He said Dracula. Of course he did. <laughs> You know, I think when he was making like Edward Scissorhands or Pee Wee's Big Adventure or, you know, and certainly like he made Batman, you know, he made some big movies that were huge franchise films, but he had more creative control in some ways. I mean, he still has creative control, but I think there's a there's a bigness to his films now that is that's got away from him a little bit. With like It's the Sam Raimi thing. It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Although Once I think Sam go... Raimi still has it in him to make, you know, because Sam Raimi amidst all that made Drag Me to Hell, which I think is one of the great horror films of the last, you know, 20 years. Personally. I ad- I adore drag or shit. I, uh, uh, I'm getting a bit, not tipsy, but it's I can go downstairs. Is that son of a bitch about <laughs> to go downstairs. He hasn't yet. He hasn't yet, Paul. We don't Paul, have to drink don't yet. Do it. Don't do it. Turn around. Turn around, buddy. Dracula's down there. It's dangerous. Don't go. And here we go. Oh, God. All right. That's the end of my mug. Okay. Mug number two. Um, What the fuck were we talking about? Uh, Tim Burton. Uh, oh, Sam Raimi. Drag Me to Hell is brilliant. I love that movie, but we, we, we must not forget that he followed it up with Oz the Great and Powerful, which is a movie that could have been directed by literally anybody else in Hollywood. There's nothing about that movie that screams Sam Raimi to me whatsoever. Wasn't this the first time in a vampire film that the fangs were like really large, like canine style fangs? I know Lugosi never wore them. Uh, I don't know if anybody, I can't recall if anybody did in the other movies. Uh, yeah, I feel like this was a makeup choice. I, I was reading like last week a little bit about it. Blood. Ooh, here comes some thunder. It's appropriate for the film. I love Such that. Such a oh, It's so great. More blood. Hope you're keeping up here, Paul. 
I'm, I, you know, I'm trying. I really am. <laughs> it's, it's hitting, hitting pretty hard. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a hard alcohol guy. So by the end of this, I might be an unintelligible. We'll see how it goes. Uh, worth noting that we I'm are sure all add a lot of great uh, opinions about Tim Burton <laughs> to this form of <laughs> <journal> commentary. <laughs> Oh my god! You know, well, but people, who are, people who are the? Fun. Can you think of aside from uh, Burton and Guillermo del Toro, who yeah. are the sons and daughters of Hammer? Like, what other movies out there have you seen where it's like, well, clearly they grew up with these movies. Clearly, they were monster kids back in the day. Do, mm-hmm. do any movies jump out at you immediately? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like Hammer. Hammer's very different than the style of horror that took root in the 70s and 80s, almost like on purpose, because that's when Hammer sort of fell out of favor. And I don't feel like its influence sort of showed back up until like post. I mean, and again, this is really broadly, but in my opinion, when I think of like when my youth and when I started to watch movies, it's sort of like the post scream like when we started getting the the remakes of like House on Haunted Hill, even though those are like William Castle things, those felt Hammer influenced. Thirteen Ghosts, absolutely. You know, like those felt like an amalgam of like the William Castle stuff, the Corman stuff, and the Hammer stuff. And I felt like that led way to Gothic resurgence that sort of intermingled with the J horror remakes a little bit. Um, you know, I think even like. There's a little bit of hammer in the ring remake in some ways, like in Absolutely. some of the story structure and the style and the lighting, you know? So I think we started seeing an influence happen again in a big way in the two thousands. And I think it sort of grew as we went. Um, and now we have things like a great modern day movie. That's to me, incredibly hammer is the boy. Yes, um, absolutely. 100% you know, that's I'm so glad so horror hammer. Um, so I think it's. I think now it's starting to come back into the lexicon a little bit more. Um, you watched the boy, and that damn movie could have been filmed at Bray. I mean, it, it's right. I mean, it really could have. And and so when I hear about you know when I think of like Woman in Black, like I think the boy sits right next to that movie. You know, I feel like it should just have Hammer at the beginning. <laughs> it should just be a <laughs> Hammer movie. Like it's it's so you know well done in what it's trying to do. Right, here <clears throat> is Peter Cushing playing yeah. a character so completely different from Baron Frankenstein, and yet oh. nailing this role just as well. To me, he strikes such an imposing figure here on screen in his first appearance. And yet, you know, when you take in his entire performance, at least in this film, I think he places Van Helsing as somebody who is capable and lethal, even if need be, but he's also operating, I think from a place of, from kindness, I think he never has a big scene where he talks about an old trauma that leads him to hunt down vampires, you know, nothing like that, but in the way he speaks with people and looks after them and just seems to care, you know, uh, and, you know, there's something about Lee himself, or rather Cushing himself, I think, that he sort of imbues this character with, where there's this kind of innate decency 
to him, I think. Now, it's also worth noting he also brought Jonathan in and got his ass killed, sure. But yeah. I, I just love the way that Cushing tackled this role, and I think it's quite different from most other screen portrayals. Not just the ones that came before, but even a lot of the ones that came after, ones that should arguably be influenced by him. And yet, I don't think anyone that I can think of has really attempted to try and mimic him because, good God, how could you? But uh, I, I think his Van Helsing is surely my favorite. And, you know, I, cemented by that amazing sequence in Brides of Dracula where he gets bitten by a vampire and says, nope, nope, not going to turn into a vampire. I'm just going to reverse this shit right now. He 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 goes through a process where he devampirizes himself, which is one of the <laughs> coolest things I've ever seen in any movie ever. Yes. But uh, I love Cushing. I love Cushing so much. Uh, I do too. Um, I love that we meet him in this movie in a classic hammer pub scene. You got to have like a town pub scene (laughs) where like the town people are kind of like weary of the person and sort of like questioning them. And the person's got to be a little cocky and sort of anyway. um, I love, uh, I love this version of him. I, I agree. That's one of the best Van Helsing's. I think it's kind of interesting because I do know I read a while back that he sort of had to convince them that he should play Van Helsing because Van Helsing's supposed to be much older. Um, and he kind of had to pitch Hammer, um, particularly Fisher, on letting him play Van Helsing as a younger man and not because they wanted to like put makeup on him and make him look older. Make him look and like he, a little old Dutchman, right? Yeah. And he was kind of like, well, you know, I, I feel like it would be it would attract younger v- viewers and people just saw me in Frankenstein and they like me looking like that. And why wouldn't you just have me look the same, which will, you know, sort of cash in on people who like that movie. Cause that was really successful. And it was because of the success of that film that they sort of let him do it. And... Does it not strike you though, that he, he's obviously young and dashing in his own way, but does he not also strike you as an older man in the sense that he is, he is a master at what he does. He is a guy who has everything in control. He is the guy that everybody else relies on. It seems like he's been doing this for a thousand years. Yes. Yeah. That's no, I mean, he Cushing, to role. Cushing to me is like perpetually There's... in his like late forties. I think he just always looks a little older, but not old. You know, he just kind of has this like mature, accomplished look about him. Um, and I sort of inherently trust him, um, no matter what he's playing. And I think that's the danger of him when he's in a more villainous role. Um, and that's sort of the comfort of him when he's in a heroic role. Um, yeah. Even though weirdly enough, I mean, if you're in his orbit, it doesn't matter whether he's playing a hero or villain, you're, you're probably going to die either way. Yeah. You're pretty screwed if you're in a movie (laughs) like Cushing, uh, and you're not Peter Cushing. Or you are the actually you, if you're Christopher you are the Lee, partner. He's screwed. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't Very usually good. make it out. Um, you're the partner in the buddy cop movie who has one day left until retirement. If you're around either one of yeah. those guys, yeah, for sure. But um, no, I, I'm I'm really glad they went with him and they they sort of made that change because um, I think again it it adds something. This movie has a different flavor than every other Dracula film. Um, And I think it's that sort of those sort of small changes that don't they don't rock the foundation of what Dracula is. Yeah, I know you're about to say stairs. I get it. I get it. Stairs. 
Oh, oh God, no, no. <laughs> nope. You might stairs? be good. You might be good. You, no, no what? Why? Where are all these stairs coming from? Paul, we're not even halfway through the stairs. Shut <laughs> up. She was beautiful earlier. What happened? Now you oh. get a stake in the heart, shit changes. Yeah, well. You know who uh, my second favorite Van Helsing is? Anthony Hopkins? I was going to say Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love that movie. So I Dude, I shit you not. Uh, uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It is one of my all-time favorite comedies. Like, if I, if I had to make a top ten, it would be in there. Uh, I love that movie. And for anyone listening, one of the best double features you could ever do, the original 1931 Dracula, Bela Lugosi Dracula, and then immediately watch Dracula Dead and Loving It, and you will just just be so happy. It is it is so rewarding to see how, like, shot for shot, Mel Brooks lampooned that film and did it so well. Sorry, off topic. No, but, not uh, off topic you, at all, because you, by God, I, I am glad that you are giving that movie love, because oh, it, it seems to me love. that everyone looks down on that movie when it came out, even years later. Like, to me, it's one of those movies that, sure, everybody pissed on when it came out, but it is long past the point where people should have come around on it and, you know, uh, revisited it and realized, no, this movie is actually genius. But nobody has yet. So thank you for actually patting it on the back, because by God... Yeah. It deserves it. That movie is fucking hilarious. It's so good, Jinx. <laughs> it's so good. The the My scene with Renfield, it was it Peter McNichol, I think, with the bug yeah. in his mouth, and you have like the one twitching leg hanging out of the corner yes. of his mouth. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like he's like, What was that? He's like, It was a raspberry. It was a raspberry. <laughs> and it's, it's you're eating bugs right from the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Take him in the back and give him an enema. No, no, not Weber and the staking sequence, you know, with the geysers of blood. Yeah. And Mel Brooks, like, stands slightly behind a wall, like, while they go to do it. They, yeah, it's so good. Oh, man. You know, and it's not just like, uh, not that there was an online community, uh, very much one anyway, back in the day, but, you know, there were like bulletin boards. And of course I had, uh, when that film came out, like, you know, the the letters pages in Fangoria and of course the the mainstream reviews, that's pretty much all I had to go on back in, uh, what was it, 96, 97 when that film came out. And, you know, for all of those things, nobody seemed to like the movie that much, but even beyond that, I saw that movie in the theater with a handful of people and I was the only one laughing my ass off like an entire, I, to the point where I started to get self-conscious about it. And I'm like, am I, is there, is, is, is there something wrong with me? Is this not funny because nobody else is laughing? Like, oh, but just... I, but I think you have to be familiar, not only with the 31 Dracula, which surely, yeah. is, but he... you have to be familiar with all of, you know, the Dracula lore and all of the movies that have come before and all of the things that, uh, Brooks references, uh, yes, to really sort of get everything out of it. I think I think that's what it was. It's it's actually really smart, and it was written off as being really dumb. Um, it's it's good parody, and it's very difficult to find good parody, you know, because there's so much bad parody. <laughs> so anyway, I agree that it's yeah, it's a great movie. You know, one thing I like about um, this film is like all of the characters. The way they show affection and the way they are together, like there's there's sort of a a woodenness between how they interact with one another for the most part. There's especially couples. Um, there's a lack of like overt power and sexuality, which is where like Dracula's 
sort of antithesis to that where he's just very commanding, very domineering um, and sort of exuding that sort of powerful sexuality um, really works to make it make sense why he would be so alluring um, to the women that he's kind of going after. You know, we could we could make judgments on Jonathan based on a scant screen time, but we can't really like unless we do that, I can't. I can't imagine that we can make many judgments on, say, you know, the relationship between he and his wife here. You know, we don't really Not see him, that much of him. Yeah, we, don't, think... we don't really see that much of her. But when it comes to uh, Arthur and uh, Mina, like, yes. clearly the way, the way they're, yeah, they're playing that like she's, I mean, you know, if we're being honest, she's an unfulfilled housewife. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> essentially it's the way that character is played. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's sort of part of it, too, is, like, culturally you know if we're to if we're to believe that like they were sort of more uptight about things like he was engaged to lucy so they probably hadn't like consummated their relationship yet um you know that probably would have happened once they got married so like there's a sense of sexual repression just running through that world in general um that the vampire offers an answer to you know, or another path. That could almost be a commentary on all the Dracula movies up until that point, which in their own way were kind of repressed. And then all of a sudden you have the hammer film coming along where, you know, Dracula is essentially an erect penis, just, you know, in a cape (laughs) running around. (laughs) That would have been an interesting choice. (laughs) They've gone that route. Um... I've gone too far there, but (laughs) Oh man. I love, the colors in every scene, the the set dressings, like you said, every every shot could be a painting. Every one, every single one, everything. I mean, just through that door when the servant came in, like you could see this ornate room with a chandelier. You know what I mean? There, there's so much world building occurring in every shot that you would never know that these movies suffered from low budget. Oh my god, no, no, it's. It looks like no expense was spared when, you know, in fact, these sets were probably held together by, you know, tape and glue and popsicle sticks. I I, I was reading like a lot of times they would just print or like they'd have paper with like a design printed on it and they would just put that on the ground to make it look like it was whatever, you know, marble design they wanted to have there. It would just be some grand thing printed on paper. And they would do that on the walls and they would do that. Like, it's just amazing what they, what they managed to accomplish with no money. And yet it always, it sells. It absolutely yeah. sells every, every absolutely bit does. of it. Yeah. yeah. The hammer's reign was impressive. Like the, the amount of time they managed to get away with this, <laughs> especially when like it was getting harder and harder to pass things by the ratings board. I mean, not yet. Like 1958, they they weren't yet at the point where they were getting like balked at as much as they would later on. Um, but there are some scenes, like you said, that were cut from this film that were sort of lost based on prints and things being burned in fires. <laughs> Seems yeah, to I be think the the, uh... the Japanese film print was the uncut version of the film, and apparently a badly damaged copy was recovered, and that's pretty much all we have left of those scenes. Yeah, which include, and I think uh, it's only the last couple reels, too, right? Like, I don't even think they have the 
first of that original Japanese print. I think they only have like the sec the like last two or three reels of the movie. Although I think that's where most of the footage was cut. Was the ending anyway? So, oh, Dracula! He said Dracula, and another jerk. He must be found and destroyed. You know what? I much like there was an eventual reboot uh, that was called Horror of Frankenstein. I kind of wish that the Dracula and Frankenstein movies had started swapping like titles. You know, like I would have watched the Curse of Dracula. I would have watched the Dracula Must Be Destroyed. You know, I yeah, a bummer they didn't go that long, but. I'm pouring another drink, by the way. I'm cool. not happy about it. How you feeling, Bolt? Here we go. Uh, well, I am feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can tell this is a little stronger than what I'm used to drinking. That's all right. We only have another 40-some minutes of Don't time. Don't tell me. I'm like, I don't want to know. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, okay. And these are, you know, one thing I love about this too is that when you watch the older Universal movies, which again I love, I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like I am bashing the no, Universal I like movies the, because yeah. I, I adore those movies for what they are, and what they are is absolute brilliance. But when you watch those movies, they almost feel like, with the exception of Creature, you know, from the Black Lagoon and some of the exterior sequences and some of the later movies, sure, but they all feel like film stage plays. I mean, that's kind of where they got their life to begin with. I love that the Hammer movies, while certainly they were shot on stages, yeah, or they were shot, you know, at Bray, uh, they have worlds that feel lived in, you know. Uh, As gorgeous as they are, I I get the sense that there is a history to each of these places and that there is a world that exists beyond those walls. And I don't know, maybe that's just what I'm bringing to it as a viewer, but to me it feels like that is the tone that Terrence Fisher sets as a director, that he is not simply limiting the story to the, the walls in which he's shooting, you know? Like there is, he gives it a sense that, I don't know, he gives it a life, I think, that, you know, some monster movies hadn't really had before this, before, you know, the the run of Hammer had begun. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, and I also really like the Universal movies, and I don't think these movies would be possible without them. You know, I mean, no, Hammer sort of set out to purposefully reinvent those monsters, not because I, I don't think they did it because they thought those monsters weren't weren't done well in the first place. I think it was, hey, you know, to make them relevant again, to make these really great characters and creatures relevant to a modern audience. Let's show them in a new way, which is kind of the conceit of art in general like it's you have to constantly reinvent what's already been done because there's only only so many things you can do and new styles and new stories are really just reinventions of things that have been told before and that's the beauty of it you know and and sometimes just a new voice or a new actor or uh, you know new style can completely change the meaning and context of the story you're watching. Um, and I think Hammer think... really represents that. No, you're good. Do you, think, do you think with Hammer, though, that was born out of artistic intention? Or do you think it was born out of necessity? Because from what I've read, mm-hmm. especially with uh, Curse of Frankenstein, you know, there was kind of a brief they were given where, yeah, you can go ahead and do Frankenstein. We are going to allow you to do that. But you can't do Karloff's monster. You can't do the flat top. You can't do the bolts in the neck. You can't do any of that. So it kind of forced them to do their own thing. And I wonder if they were sort of told that, you know, 
at least with the first handful of films, you know, we're coming up on The Mummy pretty shortly, too, which is yeah. maybe not as markedly different in some respects. But, you know, I, I wonder how much of it was them attempting to do something different, how much of it was them needing to do something different. Yeah, and, you know, look, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, it was all artistic integrity. It, it wasn't. It was a business, you know, and ultimately Hammer wasn't always horror. You know, they did other things well before they did horror and i think a lot of the higher ups and the people in charge were definitely trying to turn a profit and find ways to do that um and yeah they were under constraints with what universal was willing to let them do and they were constantly trying to avoid lawsuits and things like that but i think to accomplish that they hired true artists who did want to make good work even under whatever constraints they were given which is always going to be the case you know um, all the great artists are still constantly being told, you know, do it for less money, you know, do it. Uh, you have to figure this out. Here's the confines. Um, and because they had people like Terrence Fisher and Jimmy Sangster, um, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, you know, they were able to make things that rose above maybe any sort of, uh, cold business, intentions that, that maybe, they were born maybe it was of. a maybe it was a perfect storm then you know maybe the answer to the question i asked you know was it this or that maybe the the answer is yes you know yeah, simply right. yes you know maybe on the yeah, business and, end sure they had to yeah. uh they couldn't copy what had come before but you know maybe that was all the better for the artists that they hired um yeah and i love that i love that for it i love that we no matter how it happened what we have here is art i i yes for this. sure well it's largely i mean it's considered like one of the great movies to come out of the uk you know i think there's been a million different like oh 100 best movies top 10 you know it's it's always on there this movie is is always ranked uh, people adore it even at the time i mean a lot of hammer stuff you know, would get negative reviews, would be said, oh, it's it's terrible, it's it's exploitative. This movie was, like, incredibly well-reviewed. It made a lot of money. I, I think it really set the stage for their power and influence on the genre. Um, and, yes, uh, Curse of Frankenstein did that, but I think this movie maybe even more so, because it made more money. It, yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, I mean, we, it was... we wouldn't have had... Hammer horror would not be a thing if it were merely Curse of Frankenstein. I don't right. think it was, you know, Curse of Frankenstein teed is a brilliant film and it certainly teed everything up. But horror of Dracula, I think, is what sent Hammer into the stratosphere. For sure. Yeah. Can we talk about how stupid this maid is? <laughs> She's not very bright. Um... She surely isn't, Paul. She, she, <laughs> holy shit. Like, you're told exactly what to do to save somebody's life. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to do the opposite. Just for the hell of it. Here I go. I don't need this garlic. Let's go ahead well, and Sometimes just the plot these requires side characters to do things to move things along. You know? Make it make, it make a little sense. This feels like a Mel Brooks thing. <laughs> <laughs> let me just open this window <laughs> that's not a good idea even when there aren't vampires around why the hell would she do that yeah i love the the window shot 
get a get a far away full moon shot. I, I used to say it's not a horror movie unless you see the full moon, because most most horror movies have a shot of the full moon. It, it's a pretty common. If you were doing horror movie bingo, full moon shot be an easy sort of gimme. B four. <clears throat> okay, can we just talk for a second about Michael Goff and the fact that he will only yeah. ever be Alfred to me? Even though the man had a long, wonderful career before he played Alfred in the Batman films, but there, I can't look at him and not see Alfred. I look at him, I, I don't see Arthur yeah. Holmwood. Like, part of me is just kind of like, young Alfred, and I wonder, like, you know, for actors, is that a blessing or a curse? We could easily be talking about Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee here as well. Like, we have roles that people will remember them for forever. They have roles. You know, Peter Cushing will always be the guys that he played in Hammer and many other things. Sure, Christopher Lee has so many incredible roles, so many incredible films under his belt, certainly. But he will always be one of the greatest Draculas, if not the greatest Dracula ever. Now, certainly that was a curse when he was alive, but is it a blessing after he's passed away? And I wonder if the same is true of Michael Goff, too. The fact that, you know, there's a certain generation that will only ever see him as being one person, but at least they will remember him forever as well. It's a two-way street. And I also think it's generational, right? Because you have to think, like, okay, so for me... You know, I didn't come to Hammer till I was a lot older. So for me, like Peter Cushing was the guy from Star Wars. Like that's <laughs> how that's who I swear to God, that's what I equated him to in my mind for many years. And like he was the dude Lee. from Star Wars. Uh Christopher Lee, you're gonna laugh. Um, but when I think about Christopher Lee initially, I would think of movies like like some of the Tim Burton films he was in, like like Sleepy Hollow. Because I had never seen any of those other films. And then I saw um, Wicker Man. So I would think of Wicker Man when I thought of Christopher Lee. Um, well, honestly, I did Wicker not Man think of... Yeah, well, he's he's great in it. But I didn't think of Dracula because I hadn't seen him in Dracula. You know, And so there's a lot of generations that will see these actors. So I think for, uh, for uh, Michael Goff, like, I think it depends on the generation, too. You know, like... And for him, it was probably nice to get a resurgence for a younger crowd that wouldn't have ever seen those Hammer movies in his lifetime. You know, because there were like kids who saw the Batman movies and probably fell in love with him as an actor that never would have seen these other films before he passed away, you know, or whatever it is. So, like, I think it's I think it's a good thing. I think it's a, you know, something that brings you into limelight and sort of carries you into an eternal memory that pop culture has. Um, you know, it can be detrimental if you're typecast when you're really young, but I, I think especially when you're an older actor, I, I would imagine it would be really wonderful to land some sort of iconic, memorable role at that point. You know, it's funny. I, for whatever reason, I never made the connection before this talk, not once, but clearly Goff was cast as Alfred because Burton was a hammer fan. Oh yeah, for sure. That's, that's a guarantee. So what do you make as a fan of Mina and Lucy essentially being swapped in this story? Why do you think that choice was made? Well, um, like I said, one piece of it is if he was going to make Jonathan a vampire. So like by getting rid of um, uh, uh, Renfield... And by sort of taking out Jonathan in the first act, essentially, and giving him a different narrative, 
Um, it didn't Stairs. make much sense. Sorry. Oh, God damn it. All right. I don't think it made much sense to keep Mina his fiance. I think Mina has to have a fiance throughout the film for her seduction uh, uh, with Dracula to hold more weight. I think Lucy sort of slowly being drained, you know, can happen with or without a fiance present as well. So I think like it was more about Mina needing to have a husband or fiance that was present in the film that was sort of just there benignly kind of watching what was happening and not directly involved in it. So that way they're a little more, uh, what's the word? Maybe a little less like masculine in the face of something like Dracula. Um, so it kind of hammers home the point a little better. Sorry uh-huh. to use hammer. I know. Bad. I don't want to be Mr. Pun. I could have said funny, but. Um, so that's kind of how I always took it was because Jonathan was taken out. They wanted to have a different fiance that was present in the film. And then frankly, like I said earlier, I think just make even small changes to an incredibly familiar story makes the story more interesting. Um, because you're, you're so used to certain characters doing certain things, any changes suddenly is like, Oh, that's really cool. But it also doesn't fundamentally change what the story is. You know, I, I don't like it when, you know, they take a story that's really well known and they completely change it because then you might be getting away from what the point of that story was originally intended to be. Oh, stairs. Drink. God, you, you are really out to get me here with this. Yep. All right. Yeah, I, it's funny, talk? though, that we're seeing Lucy here. Like, it, you see the danger that she poses, and it reminds me, too, yes. that, like, you know, we talked about it a little bit early on, but it's pretty fascinating to me that in this version that Jonathan Harker begins the story being aware of Dracula being a vampire. And, you know, certainly that sets the story in motion faster. It helps us get to uh, that under 90-minute running time, sure. But, Ooh, it, let me you know, kiss you to her brother. That's so creepy. And that's great. Like, Cushing's look, the look on his face, everything about this sequence is so striking. I love that sequence. Nice. Okay, so Fright Night, anybody? Blood, by the way. God damn it. That's another movie that's very Hammer-influenced, by the way. And Cra- I, I, I mean, mean, obviously. What is what is Peter Cushing but cowardly uh, Peter Cushing? You know, like, <laughs> do you do you wish uh, that we would have gotten Fright Night as it was intended to be with Vincent Price in the Peter Vincent role? No, because you, I you like Roddy Roddy Piper. I would not never. <laughs> I've been drinking. The, okay, the, the wrestling although, sequence in Fright Night is amazing. Roddy Roddy Piper in Fright Night as Peter Vincent would be pretty <laughs> fucking great. You have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to stake vampires and chew bubblegum. Oh my god. I'm all out I would watch gum. the shit out of that movie. Sorry. No, you're good. But uh, to go back to the previous thought before yes. I it's gone forever because I'm drinking in a way I work. This is what happens. <laughs> but I, I, I remember reading I I read a review somewhere once that noted that Harker was essentially kind of responsible 
for the suffering that he brings to his loved ones in the story. And yeah, it doesn't make him a bad man. You know, he is trying to stop an evil force after all, but you know, his, his family ultimately becomes collateral damage as a result of his good intentions. And, you know, I, I wonder how much of that is his fault, how much of that is Van Helsing's fault. And, you know, nobody ever really kind of holds either man to task for that, I don't think. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if that's appropriate. Is it not? Is it, you know, it's I, I wish it's something that, you know, maybe it doesn't belong in this movie, but I kind of wish that idea had been wrestled with a little bit. I've always taken it um, in movies like this where it's sort of. You said Dracula. In, in a battle of... Oh, God damn it. In a, in a battle against evil, right? Like, I think the people who fight evil... So think like Dr. Loomis and Halloween. Like, some of the collateral damage of what they're doing, they have to just accept it and move on. Be like, look, there's this really evil thing. It's going to kill a ton of people. We can stop it potentially. I don't care what that costs. And I'm going to recruit whoever I can recruit to do that. Um, and, and that's the kind of person that Van Helsing in this film strikes me as, is that, you know, here's here's a man who's willing to do this, who who can help me, who has a, who has a position to be able to maybe do it. We're going to do it. And if that means that we put other people in danger, it's worth it because we might stop this ultimate evil as a result so they are um, agents of the greater good in a way but yeah, then, that's too, how that... i view it especially because fisher was you know he was an incredibly religious man um and all of his films have this weird like righteousness kind of running at their core even when it's about bad people there's always like a a, a righteous mentality that is either being corrupted by the mind of the cruel or employed by the will of the strong you know i wonder then you know does that to some degree make van helsing in his own way kind of a monster too you know like i oh blood i kind of yeah i mean i think that's the point though like when just like dr loomis isn't a normal person you know he never could be and he never will be loomis has like the benefit of not being attached in the same way that say Jonathan was like, not that there isn't any collateral damage when he tries to help people. Holy shit. You know, when you get to Halloween five and he's dangling a little girl as bait, like there's, you know, he's, there is, there's some shit that's changed. in that. We got to Halloween five on this commentary. I'm very proud of that. (laughs) But yeah, I, I I think Van Helsing too, like he, he might be our hero, you know, he might even be trying to do a good thing, but you know, there there is something of a monster in him, I think. And that that is, I mean, maybe in movies like this, you know, when it comes to uh, when you have to do black and white, you know, good versus evil, maybe it has to come down to merely fighting fire with fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's I like that scene quite a bit where he has to sort of take on his his sister. You know, I think the, the brother sister relationship kind of makes it personal in a really compelling way um outside of like any sexual attraction like i think it it's more meaningful when it's someone that's actually related to you um i don't know i thought it was a really nice like a a cool way to handle that 
It's interesting too, whenever heroes in movies like, not that like she was a lead, certainly, and arguably Arthur isn't either, but you know, when they do the man woman thing, but it's siblings instead of, you know, potential love interests. I think that's always a really interesting dynamic that too few movies play with. And unfortunately, I think one of the best examples of that done well is a movie that uh, would probably get me shunned if I mentioned it. So it will not be mentioned here. But <laughs> And you laughed, so you know exactly movie, what movie I'm talking about. The movie about. that must not be named. <laughs> it must not be named. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast on its own. We're not uh, doing that one. <laughs> <laughs> That, that, can, yeah. You know, we'll it's funny, in a, in a very early iteration of the show, uh, uh, Seth Dixon, who actually edits the show, uh, it was myself and him and a handful of other uh, people who were talking about that particular franchise, and uh, he had some really fascinating insights into that movie and why it's a valid piece of art that people should, you know, if not enjoy, then certainly watch and consider. Um but I, and if you're listening out there in in uh, in in podcast land, and you're wondering what we're talking about, um, that's fine. That's oh, he mentioned Dracula. Oh shit! Okay. Oh, he mentioned Dracula. Again. Dracula again? God. Holy shit! Yep, a few in by now. Oh, <clears throat> Lord. I need to pour a third one here in a sec. Um, whew. So, people, uh, you know, in Hammer movies, when they're talking, people get up and sit down and get up again a lot, and they pace a lot. It gives it and energy. I think, I, it, I think what it does is it gives an energy to conversation that would otherwise feel really kind of boring and staged, which I think was more the way of some of the classic universal horror. Because universal horror has a lot of people sitting on couches smoking and conversing, um, but not really moving very much, just like speaking to one another. So I think Hammer sort of like took that same idea, but put movement to it and camera direction and gives us the exact same exposition, but sort of convinces our minds that we're watching something more exciting. I agree. And I wonder how they block that out. Like, how do you decide which sentence somebody is going to bolt to their feet and start pacing around, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, what typical shoots on hammer were a couple months, right? So there was probably, I think they would do more with like rehearsals and stuff that we, than we get today where it's more, let's, you know, especially on low budget stuff. It's like, let's bang this shit out. Let's go. <laughs> can, can we take a second to appreciate Arthur Holmwood's monopoly money? It is solid uh, Monopoly money. You could totally buy, I don't know, what's a Monopoly place? Boardwalk? <laughs> he puts the first one down. He's like, do not pass go. Puts the second one down. Do not collect $200? <laughs> or do you? I would actually love to watch a movie where uh, Peter Cushing plays Monopoly. Very <laughs> like, I think that would be very funny. Maybe it could be the Monopoly man. Shave his head. Give him a, a big handlebar. Monopoly the movie. Is that what you're pitching right now? Why not? Let's dig yeah. him up. Or you, you know, just use CGI computer. Yeah, that, that works yeah. so well in Rogue One. So well. They've done you, before. I mean, they have his, his image. Look, oh, stairs. Okay. 
God, I don't even know what's going on anymore. What movie are we watching? Uh, it's a hammer flick, I think. I am going to be... I'm going to live up to the... I'm going to live up to the name of this podcast tonight. That's what's going to happen. Stairs, Paul. Oh, no. Don't walk down them. Please, God. Oh. There she goes. You must have been so excited when you watched this movie and figured out the stairs thing. Paul, you must have I, just been. I put the rope. stairs thing down probably 10 minutes into the movie, and I was like, because I wrote down like 10 different possibilities. And that wasn't sure. even one of them. And somebody walked down a flight of stairs and I was like, okay, maybe sometime, you know, maybe people walk down stairs. I don't know. When I saw how many times it happened, I did away with like seven other things. And I realized <laughs> all I really needed was that and a couple of bumpers. Yeah. Yep. I think I'm going to keep to just a couple too, because I had a lot of rules. I apologize. I had too many rules. I couldn't remember some. I, I can barely remember anything now. I can't. What are the other two in this game? What is Blood and Dracula? I think Blood and Dracula, and I think I've missed a few Bloods. I'm guessing, but it's it's fine. It's, it's we're getting there. It is what it is. <laughs> Look, I can't, I'm looking at the Long Island Iced Tea giant bottle I have, and I can't believe how much of it has gone <laughs> into my body. I'm like, I, okay, so it's a third empty. That third of this giant bottle is inside of me now. A third, that's it? I'm like a halfway through. What 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 measure of sipping it's, are you doing here? I don't know. I I am dr- jinx. I am drinking this shit as fast as I possibly I'm pouring another one right now. I'm about to finish the last uh mug that I made up for myself and then I'm going to have to run and uh pour another. So uh cuz let me tell you Paul let me tell you, the last 10 minutes of this movie, this climax... I, I don't want to know how many stairs are in the last 10 this minutes. This climax, want... nothing but stairs and blood, man. I'm sh- sure. I'm sure. Great climax, by the way. That's fantastic. And talk about the uh, the makeup effects that they cut out, unfortunately. Nina, I'm pretty sure she thinks so, too. <clears throat> too far? Not far enough? I could never tell. I mean, come on. You you look at that look on Mina's face just a moment ago. That is the look of a woman who has had an affair and has gotten away with it and is very pleased with herself. Oh, it's it's interesting you mentioned that uh, because this was something I read a long time ago and I remember Stairs. it. Was, oh, shit. Um, when I was reading about it. And it was when I first saw this movie. It was, the, it was a time where it really solidified that sexuality I was talking about with Dracula. And apparently, like, when they shot that scene... They they were doing a bunch of takes and she wasn't getting it right. And finally, uh, Terrence Fisher like went up to her and said, and I'm paraphrasing, but said something along the lines of, okay, pretend like you've just had the best sex of your entire life and you had it all night long. What would you look like? <laughs> and then he walked away and she came out and that was the scene we just saw. He gave her that direction and then they shot it, and he was like, we got it. And that was the look on her face. So it, it was definitely, you know, coming from that that repressed sexuality that is running throughout this film. All right. Um, Paul, I'm going to have to uh, to run for just a second. If you can entertain the listeners for just a moment, I'm going to have to pour another one because I'm... Oh, uh... Entertain the listeners. Okay. Yes. Right. Okay. I can do this. I can I'll, do I'll... this. Right. And Jinx is gone. Um so one thing I was mentioning earlier, since Jinx isn't here, I'll, I'll keep talking. Um, 
love the set dressing, and this is a great example of it. Uh, three candles in the foreground, uh, her in the background, the light back there. Um, the clock almost looks matted against the wall. The costuming, I mean, it's ornate. Everything visually is striking. No matter what they're saying, you, you, you're just captivated by the visuals. Um, I, I mean, I hesitate to say it, but it almost feels like a period sort of Kubrickian sort of world. Um, you know, one of the things I love about Barry Lyndon is all of the, uh, the visual landscapes and everything, not even just the story. And, uh, I might be the first person to do it, but I'm going to compare Terrence Fisher to Stanley Kubrick, uh, in terms Holy of the shit. Flush visuals that he that creates. Was, that was a hell of a and, note to come uh, back in on. Yeah. I, that, I wanted to do something big while you were gone and really just dig my heels in. On a on a strange thought Blood. I had. Oh fuck! I was comparing it to Barry Lyndon. <laughs> hmm. I could see that, and not the movie per, per se. There's Ter- Terrence Fisher's visual style and how he kind of creates these ornate landscapes to what Kubrick does in Barry Lyndon. I hear you, but also um, stairs. You know what? I'm I'm saying something smart and fancy, and that's all that really matters right now. Stairs, Paul. You got to take a drink. Come on now. I'm trying, Jinx. I'm trying to drink. <laughs> at this point, I, I'm really forcing it down. It is so strong. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? I'm. Uh, you know, look. I'm 100 percent Irish. I, I hail from. I hail from a feral and a Grimes. I'm 100 percent Irish. I should have a great tolerance for alcohol. <laughs> I do not. Um, I am like the the. Uh, you the very will. sad Irish. By the time we reach the late seventies, you're going to be able God, to. God, I'm, I'm terrified. <laughs> there are there's how many Hammer films are there that we're like? There's hundreds, right? <laughs> I'm not certain we're going to reach the end before we drink ourselves to death. But by God, yeah. we'll give it a shot. It's possible. We're going to do this every week. I'm liking the um, very idea i mean I, between horror of dracula and barely barry linden like uh, only one of those movies resulted from uh you know kubrick faking the uh the 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 the, the, the moon landing but um you know sure. although we need if it were horror of dracula um yeah i'm i am i'm a little tipsy um are you <laughs> well i you know I, I i sat here for an hour of the film and felt that i was fine and then I had to get a yeah. refill, and I stood up. And Paul, let me tell oh, you, no. that was a mistake, I, sir. I am so scared to stand up. I'll, I'll be honest; like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not blackout drunk. I'm not like I'm not sick. You know, it's nothing like that. But I'm just telling you, when you stand up that first time, you're gonna know that you've had something to drink, sir. Yeah. Look how she just walked out of the shadow into a key light, and then he has a key light on his face, and there's a connection between their faces. Like, visually, Terrence Fisher draws our eye to where he wants us to look, and yet there's still this gorgeous landscape around him with depth and texture. But Sorry. No, I'm just just marveling at Terrence Fisher's direction and set design. Then she goes in shadow. Then she's covered by, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm doing the commentary thing where I just say what's on screen, which is, like, what you're not supposed to do. No, no, but but Um, you're giving, like, like... I'm just so amazed by it. It's fantastic, it's but also so compelling. But Paul, he also walked upstairs. You're not getting out of this. Fuck. Fuck. 
Now, can I just say that this look on her face... She's kind of excited looking, and yeah, and she's welcoming it. As distur- the scene isn't as disturbing as the scene I'm about to mention, but I'm saying to me personally, the look on her face there is as disturbing to me as Susan George's smile in, um, uh, uh, holy shit, uh, Stray, Straw Dogs. Straw Dogs, oh, well, stra- okay. Because it's essentially the dogs? same Jesus. fucking thing. Okay, the- Straw yeah, Dogs... Like- can can I can I do a confession? A cinema what, what cinema confessions? Can we do a new segment on our podcast called Cinema Confessions? Oh, okay. All right. Don't crucify me. I can't fucking stand straw dogs. I don't okay, like it. Okay. Okay. Um, but have, okay. You, but yes. I get. I get. It's where you're because from. of that. <laughs> it's not seen. because it's like a bad movie. I just can't stand that she's into the thing that happens to her. It's I horrible. hear you. But, and we'll talk about that, but Arthur just walked upstairs. So before we get to that. Oh, shit. Also, Van Helsing just ran upstairs. So, and also there's blood. Oh, so. and, 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 and I think there's a big difference, too, between her being sexually excited about Dracula doing that and, and the thing that happens in Straw Dogs. But, because but is, it, but is it not an attack? You know, because she's is, like. Dracula is a supernatural creature that has like effect over people's personalities like we're to believe that he can seduce them with with supernatural ability okay so in straw dogs it's real fucking life yes but okay so here's the thing and i'm going to try and make this real fucking fast because we're getting to the end of this movie and i don't want to take up the entire time with straw dogs but this is also a conversation that i really want to have and i remember the guy who made the straw dogs remake said that he spoke to susan george because he hated that scene too he was like how the hell could you have a woman like enjoying like that act which was clear okay so yeah, anyone who's not seen straw dogs out there like watch fucking straw dogs and know what we're talking about Just but if you already it. know what we're talking about you know that it's a disturbing film right <laughs> but <clears throat> holy shit i want to try and do 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 the best i can even though i'm do not at my best right now but um, he said, oh shit blood okay drink oh, jesus you said blood Paul. so anyway uh rod lurie who made the straw dogs remake said that he spoke to Susan George because he wanted her, I guess, insight into that scene. And she said that Sam Peckinpah gave her a bit of direction and about that, the smile specifically. And he didn't say what it was, but he said he would give that same bit of direction to his actress. He said he didn't want to do the smile and everybody attacked him for that. They were like, oh, if you don't understand why the smile is in the scene, then you don't understand it. He's like, motherfucker, I understand that. I just don't want to fucking do it. But he was like, but he was like, I understand the direction that he gave her. And he was like, and I am going to give the same direction to my actress, which was Kate Bosworth in the remake, which is fucking underrated for any number of reasons. But I, when you watch the, have you seen the remake? No, I haven't. Okay. So one, okay. If you watch the original straw dogs, like it is the, I, I, I think somebody described it, but the original straw dogs is made by a, uh, a, a guy who's obviously right wing, right? The thing that I love, you know, when we think about remakes, remakes either hew too closely to the original film to the point where it's like, okay, why does this thing even exist? Or it goes so far astray what the original movie was. And it's like, well, why isn't it just its own thing? You know, because it's so completely divorced from what came before, right? What is brilliant and what nobody recognizes about the the remake? What is brilliant about Rod Lurie's remake is that beat for beat – uh, yeah, story for story, like his remake is the same fucking movie as the original. 
story-wise, thematically, it's all in the details. It is completely different. It is the work of a left-wing filmmaker. And so, in that sequence that we all hate, she doesn't smile. She closes her eyes. She clenches her eyes shut. Mm-hmm. And it's like she is projecting herself into another situation. It's like she is imagining that he is somebody else to the point where it pisses him off. And he's like, he doesn't understand that what he's done is wrong, which is kind of brilliant too in the remake or whatever. But he tries to wake her up and she will not open her eyes. She okay. will not look at him because, and it's like, okay, that not only lets me know what that character is thinking in the remake, but it also kind of lets me know what Peckinpah's direction was in the original movie. You know, sure. Um, and I'll tell you something okay. else too. At the end of the original Straw Dogs, after everybody is obliterated, after they have that amazing sequence, right? It cuts to Dustin mm. Hoffman, and he says something like, "I, I fucking hate myself for not being able to remember the line." But he says, "Like, I got them all," and he says it with a smile. Like all of a sudden, this this meek little dude feels like he oh stares. God damn it. But he says, like, um, I got him. And he feels it's like you get the feeling this guy, the fact that he's committed all these acts of violence crucifix in the dirt. That was good. Sorry. Love it. But he feels like he's a man all of a sudden. Right. And that's obviously what Peck and Paul would have felt like. It's like, oh, this little worm, this little mathematician, this teacher guy or whatever. You know, now he's a man. Right. So he says, I got him all. And he smiles because that is his that is the completion of the arc for that character. When you watch the remake again, which follows the story beat for beat, stares, Paul. God damn it. I told you the, the finale is rough and I'm going to finish this up real quick. But in the remake, this is not a spoiler <laughs> because, again, beat for beat, the story is the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. His version of that character says, I got them all. And he looks disgusted. He yes. looks sick of himself. <laughs> he looks like he looks like his soul fuck, has fuck, been, and that's a thing. Dude. And that's like, why that's the why remake like is so movie. fucking brilliant. It's, fucking, it's the terrible moral. It's but, toxic yeah. as hell. <laughs> it is. Like, it's, 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 it's just because I don't like this thing in the film community where it's like, oh, a movie's really well made, so it's good. I'm like, no, <laughs> that, <laughs> no, that doesn't right, resonate right. with me. Like, I've been drinking, so. <laughs> but like. I saw Straw Dogs after everyone told me to watch it. And I was like, this movie's garbage and I hate it. Like, it's not a movie that works for me at all. Now, the remake sounds like it's right up my alley. But I, I, you know, it's my thing is I get the intention of the direction. But like, ultimately, if it amounts to something that comes off in a certain way, it just doesn't resonate for me. And I, I, I agree. I here's the thing. I. There are plenty of movies that I think are still worthy of your time, even though if you ultimately don't agree with their politics or agree with the point of view that they came from, but sure. you can still draw something from it. And I can watch Straw Dogs, and it is very well made, and I think the performances are yeah, fucking great. It is. But it is, by the end of it, you feel icky. And the movie did not intend for you to feel that way. The movie intends for a right. certain viewer to go out of that pumping their fucking fist. And that's not what it should be. What's amazing no. about Rodlery's remake is that it is the exact same story with a completely different soul. And that's what I think is brilliant about it is that you need both movies. The movies are counterpoints to one another, and they exist in harmony with one another because they are sure. so completely fucking different from one another, even though they're essentially the exact same thing. If you get the chance, watch that remake and let me know what you think. Oh, because somebody yeah, does something like, how, how could you remake a masterpiece? It's like, well, you tell no, the same story. I, I'm, I'm in. I'm totally in. 
We should probably talk about this uh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what is that? You've been a listener for a while, Paul, and thank you for that. But is Screamatics is this not show for digressions anyway? It, it yeah, you're right. If we didn't, and take I another and I am I am a big big Screamatics fan, um, and oh. every episode I'm on, I I feel very grateful. So uh, so yeah. Uh, this is this is really cool. Uh, you know, one thing I read that's kind of funny is all those horse buggies are like actual reproductions of like original horse and carriage buggy things from a guy who runs a business who ran a business back then in London that like did that kind of stuff. Stairs again. There's God, damn, so many that's stairs. Three drinks ready. Four drinks, Paul. I didn't even any drinks? What? I got pour another drink. I like. Uh, by the way, I want to call out. Oh, no, there's so many stairs. Oh, no, don't. That's two sets. Oh, stop. Does drinks. that mean I have to do it again when it goes back up? Yes. Oh yes, you do. What, what was the rule? Okay. Come on, Paul. We're at the end here. Stuff. We got to power through. Throws a candle at him. I love that. But Six no, drink. I love that we go back through the sets we saw at the beginning of the movie, and now they're recontextualized with different lighting scenarios. Okay, can we talk about one thing? Can we talk about one? How amazing the sequence is, the fact that Van Helsing fakes his death in order to get, like, you know, the upper hand on track hill. But two, the fact that no matter how brilliant Christopher Lee is, how handsome he is, and how creepy he is here, he has, there's something about Mary Hare going on here right now. <laughs> He's got to... <laughs> He got real excited, and he was trying to, you know, rub one out before the big day. <laughs> uh, just went the wrong way, is all it boils down to. No, I, I like how excited and proud of himself he seems, and then when Cushion gets up, how, like, angry and a little scared he is. And now he looks over. Yeah, I love that. Oh, oh, and by the way, Cushing uh, insisted he do that jump himself. When they wanted to use a stunt double. Because Peter Cushing is a bad And guy. it was his idea to run across the table and do it. Um, they did not want him. That was not originally in there. I like the stack of books. It's all connected. Oh, the candlestick thing. The that candlestick was also Cushing's thing. idea. Because Cushing thought he used a crucifix too much. And he wanted to do something different. It's utterly uh, this, iconic. And this is the scene where there's cut footage. Where his skin is melting off. And isn't there like a scene where like. There's a like candle wax on his face and he scratches at it and there's blood it's, underneath. It's like not he's in this version. So yeah, no, they no, they did this thing it. where uh they painted his face red and then they put mortician's wax over top of it and then makeup to make it look like a skin tone. So when he drug his fingers down it, it revealed like the raw skin underneath, like peeling off. And unfortunately that shot was fucking cut by the censors. Yeah. But it's in the uh the like the a different version, like you said, that there's still film reels of, but they're very badly damaged. I don't know. A part of me feels like somewhere oh, out there, there's got to be a cut of that film. There's oh, there got to be those. It's it's been reinstated. It's in like the UK Blu-ray, I think. So isn't it could... like really rough? Oh, it's beat to like shit. It yeah, it's rough. from like a Japanese print that hasn't been like restored. But and it was a fire. Can I ask you something? <laughs> like, yeah. It's a happy ending for the men here, right? Like Van Helsing not only vanquishes the evil that he had set out to uh, destroy in the first place, but in a way he kind of also avenges like his friend Jonathan, right? Then with yeah. Arthur, Arthur gets his wife back. Can I mm -hmm. ask you, mm -hmm. is it or is it not a happy ending for Mina? 
It's a good question. Um, uh, do I, are you asking in the context of the film or me personally? <laughs> yes. Uh, in the in the okay in the film, I think yes, it's intended to be. She is freed from the confines of this villain. Um, and because of the societal norms that she's mentally adopted, she'll, you know, walk away feeling good about it. Um, me personally, I think it's a little sad that this monster offered her something that she wasn't otherwise capable of getting or that she didn't view herself as being capable of getting like she didn't have the agency um but that's kind of just prevalent in films of that time right you know like that just wasn't what they allowed for which is unfortunate um but yeah i think the film sees it as a happy ending oh surely yeah but it's like you know if he you know, and she, <laughs> there's something in the way she plays that moment when the uh, the the scar disappears from her hand. Yeah. You know, right? Like, obviously, like Arthur is the over the moon, but she is kind of like, you know, she gives a smile, but it's kind of like this sad, wistful kind of smile. And I don't think it's due to the fact that she had just gone through this horrific thing. I think it's kind of like, you know, she's lost something kind of here. You know. She was excited about something different and something that was being offered to her that she wasn't receiving before. One might argue, though, that having lived through this, um, that her husband might now be more like might offer something more fulfilling because he almost lost her like that. I think that's part of it is that like the film's like, oh, a lesson has been learned and now there's a little bit more willingness to be overt about how one feels and what one wants amongst these people. And they're going to appreciate their lives a little bit more. Um, and I, I think some of that comes out of Terrence Fisher's like very devout religious beliefs. Cause he really was like, a, when you read about him, he was very, very religious and he believed he sort of believed in good and evil. And I think some of that manifests in ways that good can be as detrimental as evil can be if it's too extreme. You know, I think he, I think he saw extremes as bad. Um, and I think living through a situation like this might bring them to a place where they each now know what they what the other one wants and they might be able to deliver that better. Um, but that might be me exercising a little bit of wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to ask sitting before you, how much of a red comet do you have left? Oh no. Uh, like half a wine glass, half a wine glass. Okay. So that's funny. I, I got about a half a goblet left here. So I tell you what, before we finish up our talk on this, let's, uh, let's, uh, clink glasses from across the distance. Okay. Let's finish this red comet and okay. let's, uh, let's send off horror of Dracula. Ready? I'm ready. All right, let's clink. Clink. And finish. <laughs> oh. Holy shit. Yep, okay. there it is. All right.
So, Paul, what do you think of Red Comets overall? Red Comets are, um, they're stronger than beer. <laughs> uh, damn right there. And they taste, do they not taste better? Uh, Jinx, you and oh. I have very different definitions. I, okay, and I, sh- I am drunk, so you know it's true. <laughs> I love the taste of beer. I, I oh, think sh- it's great. Now, I, okay. I like certain types of beer. I don't like Budweiser. I don't like Miller White. But when it comes to Stone IPA, the delicious uh, beer I asked you to drink, which you despise, I find that to be quite delicious. Um, you know, I like sweet things, of course. I'm a human being. I like sugar. Uh, but too much of a sweet thing can be a little bit, uh, you know, difficult for me. What, over which time. which, which but, was more challenging for you with Red Comet? Was it the sweetness of the grenadine or the power of the alcohol? Mm, that's a good question. I at, okay. Uh, again, I'll be honest. I, at first, it was the the alcohol. By the end, I was pouring in a lot of grenadine. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, by the end, it became the grenadine. I think uh, I need to mix. I think if I could put a third thing in there to sort of cut it a little bit, like a okay, so I tell maybe you like what? a sparkling water or seltzer water or something. My, that that would maybe help me a little bit. So next time, if you ever have them again, blend them with ice because the ice cuts it a little bit. Um, sure, ice would I, be good. That was my first two goblets. The third goblet was just straight. You know, I didn't want to blend. That's on what there, I've been doing. So. It's just straight. Yeah, I don't have any fancy. Yeah. Things up I'm in my room. I've got I've got the bottle sitting next to me with the grenadine, just like chilling next to my on my computer desk. So that's the situation I've been in. Uh, this whole time, so Paul. Next we are, time, oh, we are. Ahead. No, I was, I'm sorry. I, I probably shouldn't be interrupted. I, I feel like I interrupt when I'm sober. I can't even imagine what this is going to sound like when I'm it kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm sorry. I apologize in advance for listeners and you. No, um, but we are at the end of the second episode of Getting Hammered with Hammer. How are you feeling about this so far? Uh, I'm having a lot of fun. <laughs> Same here. This is like a fun, like weekly thing, like at a weekly. I, yeah, I've been something like this. It's a nice escape from the fact that the world is ending. So I, yeah, I've been really. I looked forward to it all week. I had a a lot going on this week at work, and it was it was something I looked forward to. So, um, I was really excited to do it. I think uh, I think we had a good time, man. I did too. Now, can I ask? Do you have any final parting thoughts? Anything that you didn't mention during the show that you want to? Uh, to pass along to listeners about horror of Dracula. Um, nothing that I didn't already say. I mean, at the end of the day, my hope through all of this is to get people to watch hammer movies and to appreciate the, the power and impact they have on the genre. Um, when it comes to Dracula, I, you know, you said it, I said it. I think this is the defining cinematic moment for Dracula. I think it's the thing by which I compare all other Dracula iterations. Christopher Lee shines as the villain in this movie. Peter Cushing shines as Van Helsing. Um, And it establishes Hammer's power and prowess when it comes to style, um, set dressing, lighting, and everything they're able to do on a very low budget and how they're able to appeal to incredibly mass crowds by way of it. So um, if nothing else, if you don't already own it, please take this as a reason to go buy 
the Warner Archive Blu-ray of this movie and watch it at home. Uh, no, they are not sponsoring this episode, but it is something that... Um, but they should be. I think that every horror fan should own and watch and appreciate. You know, I can't add much more to that except to say, like, this this movie is absolutely brilliant. I, I think modern horror owes it so much, even though it seems like it is a product of the past... I think uh, there are so many tropes that it created within it and so many tropes that it evolved by the time this movie rolled around that, uh, you know, even going so far as, you know, you mentioned the ring owes so much to it. And I agree with that. But, you know, the basic style that it set forth, the Terrence Fisher sort of cultivated over the course of his career that really sort of came into its own with this particular film, I, I, I think I think it's such an important horror movie. Uh, as much as I think that, you know, Hammer Horror, you know, in its entire run is so important to horror movies. And I don't think that it's widely acknowledged. It feels like whenever you talk about Hammer Horror, you know, it's kind of a niche thing. You know, there are rabid Hammer fans and those rabid fans are literally the only fans. Because anybody who is introduced to Hammer Horror becomes a fan, but it feels like not enough people have been introduced to it. So it's my hope that Scream Factory, in releasing these new editions that they have, you know, that people are discovering these films, you know, one by yeah. one. And, uh, you know, hopefully in some small way, this podcast kind of points people to it, uh, even though we're we're taking definitely a, uh, a strange route in going about uh, recommending these movies to people. Well, but, you know. But yeah, but Horror of Dracula or Dracula, whatever you want to call it, it is a, it is a work of brilliance. And if you're a listener out there, I hope you enjoyed listening to this commentary with us, getting uh, more and more fucked up as we appreciated this film. I got, I got pretty drunk, so <laughs> I now, did next... get hammered with hammer tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now, next time, we are actually going to be doing The Revenge of Frankenstein. Next time will be Paul's Choice, uh, which... Uh... Damn it, Paul. You know what? I love Horror of Dracula. I do. I do not regret the movie or the drink choice, but by God, like I, the, the, the Frankenstein cycle is my favorite. I haven't been able to do one of them yet. It's pissing me off, man. So next time you're probably going to drink a beer of some sort. Just choose. I mean, if you it would choose... be out of character for me to not choose a beer, right? I mean, uh, yeah, this point, I'm fine with you being out of character, man. <laughs> if that means no beer. Okay, here's, here's what about... Oh, go ahead. No, please, go you, ahead. You're first. What no. if I pick something like citrusy? Great, then I can have heartburn while I'm pissed off. <laughs> It's no, got to be a high no, content. We're getting hammered. Like, no, no, exactly. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. More than anything, if if you choose a beer, that's fine. But if is is there even such a thing, Paul? I am not a beer connoisseur. I have tried every fucking beer on, on the planet ahead, to try to find a single one, <laughs> either one, Paul, that I've liked. And in my near forty years on the planet, I have not found one. No, but. Is there even a single beer out there that has... Is there a 30-proof or a 40-proof beer? Because if I'm going to have to force myself through this, I at least want to be getting screwed up while I'm doing it. I will... I'll do some... I, I will I will look deep and hard. <laughs> That's all me. There, I mean, there's like 11 12% alcohol beers. You know, like Pumpkin is pretty high up there. Imperial pumpkin stouts. There's some really high alcohol content. 
I'm very. I will say this. I'm very curious about the pumpkin. pumpkin. They're they're harder. They're harder to acquire. Um, you can't get them at the average grocery store, but you know we could we could figure some shit out. Um, you know, I, I could. The other thing we could do is I'm a big fan of ciders. I like hard ciders. You know that that could be a. Yeah, exactly. So we could we'll, we'll figure some shit out. We'll we'll get this going. And yeah, maybe no, no matter what I'll tell you what, I will work on a hard so. alcohol drink. I've got I've got an idea for one. Um but I'm not sharing that yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, and here's the thing. It's your choice entirely. You can do what you want. So uh I, I will suffer through whatever, but I but we have to, you know, I, I, I just think we have to stick to the brief, which is uh, you know, we gotta get hammered while we're watching the hammermen. So, you know, alcohol content's you know, gotta be hard to get hammered drinking beer. I get that. You have to drink a lot of beer to get hammered. So we'll 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 figure it out. We got this. <laughs> All right. All right, so I think that pretty much ends our episode on Horror of Dracula. Folks, I hope you've been appreciating this. We are two episodes in. We've done Curse of Dracula and Horror of... Shit. Curse of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. I, I, I might be a little drunk, yeah. So, all right. Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula. I am I am here with co-host Paul Farrell. Paul, thank you so much for being a part of these episodes. I really appreciate it. Uh, next time we are going to be doing the revenge of Frankenstein in advance of that episode dropping. We are going to let you know what the alcohol of choice is and what the drinking game will be. We hope you acquire the movie by some means, whether it be uh, physical media, fingers crossed or streaming. And, uh, then we're just going to hang out. We're going to watch the movie. We're going to, we're going to do a little commentary and we're going to get hammered with hammer. So, uh, we cannot wait to see you. Uh, can't wait to see you then. Paul, I don't know how to wrap this fucking thing up. Uh, do you got anything else? No. <laughs> I'm drunk, so I got nothing, man, at this point. All we right, don't really have a wrap-up, do we? We need, like, a sign-off. We need, don't. like, a good, like, maybe, sign-off maybe. situation. Yeah, fucking hell. Uh, next time, next time, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to wrap this up. Otherwise, a sign-off. <laughs> <laughs> don't right. worry, guys. It's coming. <laughs> Really the solid sign-up, I promise. You know, and here's, here's the thing that kills me. is like, you know, we're, we're about to finish this episode, but it's really the next 30 minutes that are going to be the most fun. So, uh, yeah, should we keep talking? I don't know. We can keep like, talking. I don't give a shit. I mean, this is the it? part where normal podcasts go like, you can find me on Twitter at, and I'm not really into that. They know where they can find us. <laughs> if, they're li- if they're listening to us, they know who the fuck we are, right? I, I mean, hope so. They're probably following us on Twitter, so I'm not really super worried about that. Maybe. Um, but everybody else knows who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone that doesn't have us blocked knows exactly <laughs> where we are. <laughs> Right, so you know, I don't need to do that whole thing. Uh, you know, I, I just I wish we had a great hammer sign. I we need to come up with something, you know, some sort of. I tell you what, I you know, my favorite part of, of like you know recording a lot of stuff, Paul, is usually the chat with people beforehand and after, and certainly you are no exception. In fact, after the chat is. Is amazing. Yeah, the chat is amazing. So I tell you what. I, can I tell you something? I'm going to be honest. I'm pouring another drink and I already Holy think it's a bad shit. idea. No, yeah. A drink as we speak. It is. Uh, I am now less than half of this giant fucking bottle. I'm putting grenadine in there. Uh, a lot of grenadine, I'm going to say. Uh, here we go. All right. 
Okay. Yes. All right. All right. So, okay. Yeah, then I'm going to have to hop off here for a second so I can pour myself another one. But here's the thing, folks. If you're looking <laughs> out there. talk with the commentary going. I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> going. All right, so, I'm okay. listening. If you are a listener out there who is only interested in the Hammer movie, then you could go ahead and sign out, baby. You can you can find us at, at Scream Addicts. That's uh, at the fuck at sign S C R. You know how to spell it. Spell it? I personally am. Spell it. <laughs> I am at Jinx1981. That's J I N X 1981. And Paul, where can people find you at? Uh, Paul is great. 2000. Uh, not at, at all.com twitter.com <laughs> is where i'm located a tweet about horror movies and sometimes other movies that aren't horror as well so all right so now with that said if you're only tuning in for the uh commentary you are welcome to go ahead and take off but i think paul and i are gonna have an after chat because those are usually the best and honestly you know, if, if we're being honest, Paul, the, the alcohol is probably kicking in at this point, especially considering I'm about to pour another one. You just poured yeah, another one. I feel pretty drunk. I feel a lot we, drunker than I did we, during the movie. We, we I'm not gotta gonna live lie. up to the getting hammered part of getting hammered with hammer, I think. You know, that's only fair to the listeners. So it's hard. You know what we could start doing, Jinx? What's that? We could start drinking a little bit before the movie. Oh my God. So have, okay, what if, here's a proposal. What if the first 15 minutes of the podcast are you and I talk and have one full glass? Yes. So we just talk about shit. We talk about, oh, what if we do like a recently watched kind of segment almost? Yeah, because like like, I all of my favorite. Hey, what have you been watching? What are you up to? And then we do that for 15 minutes. And in that 15 minutes, we have to consume a drink. So by the time the film starts, we've already had one drink. I think that's right. I think that's fair. I think that's cool. Uh, this is us live workshopping the podcast, people. This is this is the quality content that you don't get on most podcasts. <laughs> All right. So, now, here's the thing. I, uh, you, you know, usually when I get this tipsy, I just take to Twitter. Um, but now people actually get to hear me, which is, uh, you know, a new kind of hell for them. But uh, tell you what, I have to go pour another drink. I'm going Mute myself. If you can entertain the audience for about the next uh, two minutes, I will be back. I have an idea of how to entertain them. I'm going to do it. Perfect. (laughs) All right. I will be back and muting in three, two, one. Hi, audience. Uh, Welcome to uh, After Dark, Getting Hammered with Hammer. This is After We're Already Hammered. I will be watching the trailer to uh, Horror of Dracula. So I'm going to press and play now. Oh my, uh, lots of pops. Uh, Dracula is approaching uh, a bed. Okay, coffin's opening. This is pretty freaky. Ooh, he's, wa- oh, Cushing, Harker's, oh, door's opening. She's, oh my gosh. Lots of running, lots of cry- lots of crying. I hiccuped, I apologize. Universal International presents Dracula. The blood is dripping off of the title. And now words are scrolling up the screen as Lucy is uh, trying to kill the child. Filmed by the producer, director of the sensational thriller, The Curse of Frankenstein. This is a really good trailer. Uh, Cushing is there. He's kind of sort of nonchalant, uh, but also intense in that special Cushing way. Oh, here is Lee again. He is about to seduce Mina. And we cut immediately to her fiance. No, Harker, her brother. Oh, my. Okay, now we're back at Cushing, uh, talking. There's no subtitles here, so I can't hear what they're saying. Oh, he's in the pub. 
Uh, so we got you have to have a pub scene in a Hammer commercial. Although I have to admit, this is a pretty reserved trailer for Hammer. Hammer is usually flying words at the screen, being like crazy shit. Uh, okay, all right. Here's Melissa Stribling, Stribling, Christopher Lee. Very intense, looking at the camera, walking towards me. Dracula bleeds onto the screen once again. And he goes into... Okay, the name strikes fear at the heart. Flies at the screen and the door closes. An owl appears. This is the worst kind of commentary. I apologize. And Dracula is dripping from the screen once again. Hell holds you in a grasp of shock. Oh, hill, not hell. I'm drunk. I'm reading it wrong. Technicolor. Okay, so we know it's in color. That's a good thing. Um, And then we zoom in on the Dracula uh, tomb, like the beginning. But we don't see the blood hit it, which is kind of interesting in a trailer. You would think that we would actually see the blood. And thus concludes the trailer for Dracula. So now let's have the after trailer talk. Now, the trailer itself, um, I'm going to be honest, it didn't really hook me. But it's 2020 and not 1958. So... Presumably back then it it would have packed a bit more of a punch. Okay, uh, I'm back. Oh, hi, welcome back. Uh, what are, what are, what are we what are we talking about, Paul? Well, it's over now, so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> what did I miss? Yeah, I I mean you missed maybe the most important part of the podcast, but um, you can listen to it when it posts on Screen Screamatics. Uh, they have a Twitter page. It's at. I've heard heard that they have a Twitter Uh, page. I've tweeted them before. Uh, (laughs) They are pretty responsive. So, you know, if you need to know what's going on, they'll let you know. We try. And by we try, I mean I try. (laughs) Well, that's why I started talking to you. I I started tweeting at the Screamax account, and you tweeted me back. So, you know. I remember. Now here we are. (laughs) I was so excited we had fans. I was like, holy shit, people are listening. This is amazing. Uh, I was a big fan. I yeah, you know John Squires tweeted about you, and so I started listening. And John you know, Squires is the best. Um, yeah, okay. I like him. He's a good yeah. guy. Yes. So what's up, man? You got a new not, drink? Not much. No, I have the same drink, just just uh, more of it. Um, how how many? How what? What does your bottle look like at this point? Okay, my is bottle is, uh, I'm going to say, two-thirds drink okay. of the Long Iced Tea. I've got like a quarter of a bottle left, so... So, I may be a little bit higher up, but you got to remember, Jinx, I am not a liquor guy. I am a beer guy, and, uh, you know, not usually this strong. I don't know Zol- what a liquor guy is. Is a liquor guy somebody who can drink liquor and not get smashed? Because if so, I am not that guy yet. <laughs> okay, okay, not that, but maybe more like a guy who just imbibes liquor. Well, you know, it's a post-pandemic world. I mean, we all drink a lot now, so that's fair. I mean, I get it. I drink. <laughs> I drink a lot. Look, last night I watched the movie Junior. Okay, and you what, gotta believe I wasn't fucking junior? sober for that, huh? What is junior? Did you what? You don't okay? I, I don't. Yeah. 
You don't know what Junior is? I'm sorry. I don't know what the fuck Junior is. Uh, it's an Ivan Reitman joint. Okay. So first off. Oh, is that like latter era, like Reitman though, where we don't really, you know, it's, 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 it's post heyday Reitman. Is that what we're talking about here? It's, 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 it's as close of a sequel to Twins as we're ever going to get. What Danny DeVito. Oh, wait. Isn't this where like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger Arnold Schwarzenegger impregnates himself and the and and the movie and the movie takes it incredibly seriously um like it plays itself like a melodrama and most of the comedy comes from how fucking serious arnold schwarzenegger is about being a mother like that's (laughs) like it is so fucking bizarre like i'm watching this movie last night and i keep looking at my wife and i'm like what the fuck like who thought this <laughs> up it's so funny like i think because the score it's like a mrs doubtfire score it's like the sweet saccharine like 90s you know like oh all the feels kind of score but it's arnold schwarzenegger bearing a child like so it's so ludicrous that like no matter how seriously all the characters take it, it's hilarious because it's so bizarre. Do they? Do um, they okay, I gotta. Uh, so first admission here: one, I have not seen this uh, fucking it's, slice it's of great. insanity. I love it. I love but number it. I, number two, it reminds me of like a fucking Grendel uh, arc where there there was a dude who actually like he didn't trust a woman to carry his own child, so he basically. He had shit implanted in him where he could carry a child. So, like, if you're telling me that Schwarzenegger is kind of playing like Grindel in this, then I'm I'm in, uh, man. But well, it's not quite. It, it, <laughs> I love. Okay, are we about to go on a whole like? Okay, we're gonna do this. We're gonna go on a junior arc. Okay. Oh shit. So junior, <laughs> the plot of junior. <laughs> Oh, man. I hope everyone stopped listening. Um, (laughs) I'm taking another drink as we talk. Okay, the plot of Junior is this. Danny DeVito is a very famous, like, uh, very successful uh, doctor for pregnant women. And him and Arnold Schwarzenegger are developing a serum, which is supposed to help the egg adhere um, in women who normally have... uh, 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 miscarriages so it's an altruistic sort of intent right like they're trying to help women who uh, who are having miscarriages and um, the FDA will not allow them to move beyond uh, to test to a human counterpart even though they've successfully proven the serum works on a primate so the the college or university that they're working for cancels their funding. Uh, they bring in a new scientist who's played by Emma Thompson, of all people, who's doing something with frozen uh, eggs. And uh, in a last-ditch effort to ensure their science doesn't die with the project, Danny DeVito steals one of her uh, frozen eggs and convinces the very, like uptight unfriendly arnold schwarzenegger to experiment on himself to see if the egg will survive with the serum 
because he claims it does not matter if it's a male or female body. It just matters if we can help the egg survive. And the idea was just to work it for the first trimester and prove human testing so they could get additional funding. What occurs is that Arnold Schwarzenegger, upon being impregnated, (laughs) uh, uh, starts to feel maternal instincts towards the child and basically breaks protocol to ensure that it doesn't die upon the first trimester and, and, and designs to have it survive to term, to fruition, uh, and bring this child on, onto the earth. Um, and he becomes a mother, essentially. Paul. Um, so it's Paul, if I were, Paul, if I were a Hammer fan tuning into this episode i would be so pissed right now man can i tell you has there can i ask you a question though a very serious hit question me. Hit me. has there ever been a more eloquent drunken interpretation of the film junior on any podcast <laughs> if there has been i i would be disappointed i hope not i hope not sir if I anybody if anybody's still listening i should get praise for that interpretation not uh condemnation well, I, I got to tell you, I'm looking up at my television right now, and it's on the horror of Dracula, like uh, the menu screen. And Christopher Lee is holding, um, I, I can only assume, Mina in his arms. And he's got this look on his face of, like, mild disgust. And I can only imagine that it, <laughs> it comes because he's listening to a conversation about Junior. Hey, you know what? You you asked me about Junior. <laughs> okay, so fuck off. If you if you have a problem with my explanation, I I feel I did a pretty good job boiling down the narrative into a bite size audio clip. Okay, so, so um, to be clear, are you telling me to fuck off, or are you telling Christopher Lee's Dracula to fuck off? Because that's two entirely different things, pal. If you're not careful, I'm going to block you. Because <laughs> Alan, please, no. <laughs> I would never tell Christopher Lee's Dracula to fuck off. I would never do that because he'd probably kill me. Would you block him? Um, on Twitter? You know, but no, I needed, I, you know, I wanted something silly last night that, that was, that was silly. And that was very silly. And, uh, anyone looking for silly should watch Arnold Schwarzenegger get impregnated by Danny DeVito and very care, very carefully cared for by Danny DeVito. All right. So that's your your movie of choice. I got to ask, like, before I dive in. Like, you know, it's funny. We we can do the post-movie chat, but, you know, this is... Let's do a post-movie chat. We can skip by Junior. We don't have to talk about Junior. A a lot of podcasts that I listen to or used to listen to, like, they... uh, One of my favorite parts was actually just them catching up and all this stuff. I'm fucking talking about Shockwaves here, and I miss Shockwaves, damn it. But, like, I I really miss fucking Shockwaves. Um, But, um... You know, I, I love the opening, like, 45 minutes to an hour where they basically catch up on, like, everything they've seen and stuff they've watched recently. But it occurs to me, like, you know, the stuff that I was always proud to talk about on Twitter was brand new movies that I would watch at a movie theater, which has not happened in about four and a half months. I'm starting yeah. to twitch a little. Like, I drove by my local AMC, and it's all – they boarded up the front windows and lobby entrance, Paul. Oh, like goodness, really yeah yeah AMC. i don't even know what that i don't know what that means but it scares me wow um you know some dickhead well, if you like, you know let's talk about let's do class. let's do three recently watched let's do that paul i'm not sure i can even remember that right now man but do you, okay. have, do you not do letterboxd 
No, I don't. I need to. I know. Dude, I need... you need to do Letterbox. I know. It's how it's how I fucking remember what I watch. Um. So we're gonna. Uh, did we're you going... see? Uh, well, here. Uh, have you watched uh, Host? On uh, yes. Shutter? Yeah, I loved think? it quite a bit. Loved it. Actually, I thought you know. Okay, I have a couple I can talk about then because okay, yes. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Let's let's talk about Host. I loved Host. Uh, I thought it was kind of a brilliant use of the. You know, it's not found footage. It's kind of like the uh, what I call the laptop, like or the screen. Subgenre. It's screen horror. Yeah, I, I think of it as screen horror. Yeah, um, we, we have unfriended. In, we have in the vein of that. searching and searching, unfriended. Which is still the best one, searching. Um, Searching's so good. I, I I show searching to everyone I can. It's the, best, what's, the best version of that. But Host, yeah. I think, was, you know, hats off to Shutter, not just for the stuff they curate, but the stuff they've been presenting as exclusives. I think they're knocking it out of the park. And Pedagore was amazing. The pool was fucking fantastic. And now they have the host or rather host. And honestly, like it was, you know, do I think it's flawless? No, no, I don't. I, I think there are a couple of things, particularly the demon and the quick shots of it, I think are a little low rent, but the performances and the presentation yeah. are so fucking spot on. And the scares are so well orchestrated <clears throat> that I can't yeah. help, but think that it's one of the best horror movies I've seen this year. I, this is something I never thought I'd say. I'm a big fan of screen horror. I think screen horror has this uncanny ability to tap into something fundamentally present uh, in our everyday lives, right? Which is, unfortunately, looking at screens. We all look at screens all the fucking time. Everything we do has to do with screens um and there's a limited nature to to how you would make a screen movie and that limitation i think forces a creativity that is not present in most other low budget horror films um and even in unfriended and you know which isn't a perfect movie but i think both of them are entertaining to say the least and it 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 makes them compelling to watch um and i think host did a phenomenal job of tapping into that and i gotta say bring on the horror movies that are about an hour long because fucking that was great (laughs) the runtime like perfect and it still feels feature length not an like, ounce of fat on it. No, it was exactly what it needed to be. It was as long as it needed to be. And that made it all the more accessible. Can so, I say one thing, though? My overall feeling is that screen horror, this is weird, but screen horror at a glance, I think, <laughs> this sounds dumb. And, I pre- and I'm not knocking anybody for attempting it. I'm really not. But at a glance, I'm just saying my own personal feeling is that screen horror is a terrible idea. And also that I have pretty much loved every screen horror horror film. So, there has so been. is it a bad idea then? It's a no, bad idea. It's not. It's, it's, it's only a, a great bad idea. idea. It's I a great idea that like looks like you, a terrible idea. Right. When people talk to like if if I had never seen one. Okay? If I and frankly, put it this way, before I saw any, 
when I heard about Unfriended, I was like, well, that's a bad idea. And I'm never going to watch that <laughs> because that just sounds stupid. Right. And then you see the movie and you're like, holy shit, this is pretty good. And then you see Unfriended 2 and um, or Dark Web. And I'm like, man, I actually enjoyed this even more. And then you see Searching and you're like, this is great. <laughs> you know, and and again, maybe it's because I haven't seen a hundred of them. It's not like found footage where there's, oh, everything's a screen movie now. Because I think most people are afraid to embark on doing such a thing because the idea just seems so callous, you know, when it comes to art. But those who actually embark on making one have done a great job. I I, I haven't seen a bad screen horror movie yet. I'm sure there is one. I haven't seen one. Like when your batting average is better than found footage at this point, then you're, you're doing a pretty good job. I think as a subgenre, not that subgenre has a consciousness where it's actually electing to choose what movies are included. No, that's not the case, but nevertheless, like every, you know, I've seen four, I've seen four screen horror movies. I don't even know if more exist than that, but by God, everyone is a gem. uh, There there is one called the den that I'm dying to see because all that fucking movie okay really because uh, okay no, so no, here's, here's uh, the thing it's great it's great it is actually arguably it is arguably more effective than every other movie that i've seen in the screen horror see, and that's what I've but heard. the ending to see it. the final three minutes one made me realize something about myself as a viewer. And here's the thing. I can't share that without it being a spoiler. Sure. But the final three minutes made me realize something about myself as a viewer. One. And two, it so thoroughly disappointed me. And it so thoroughly pissed me off that it actually ruined the preceding 87 minutes. No matter how effective they were. And they were effective. But not oh, no. only did they not stick the landing, they they shot the gymnast in the fucking kneecaps with that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's See, what pisses me I, off. That one. And, uh, you know, Trace Thurman uh, from Horror yeah. Queers, and he writes for Buddy. Uh, he's a buddy of mine, and he loves that movie. He says it's like, he ranks it above searching. Oh, so wow. I've been and like... I get that. Trying to see it because like, he's such a big fan of it and I trust his judgment. And so I'm like, yeah, that's the one that I haven't seen that I'm like, okay, I need to see that shit. Um, (laughs) But like, no, I mean even, okay. So even with that, like from what I'm hearing from you, even someone who doesn't maybe love it, um, you're saying 90% of the movies amazing. Yes. And then like, it's just this little bit at the end that doesn't work, but it's, I mean, but that's it's still, it, but it's, 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 you know, imagine you've had the most amazing dinner, Paul. And then at the very end, somebody pisses in your mouth. Like, that's what we're talking about here. I like, mean, was, was the dinner good? Sure. <laughs> was the visit to the, the restaurant great overall? Pretty terrible. You know, you're that's, talking that's about, what we're talking, you're talking about. The- Book of M. Night Shyamalan's movies. 
You're talking about like every yeah. movie M. Night Shyamalan's made? A- am I talking? Uh, okay, sorry. here's, here's the thing, Paul. I'm being dip, cruel now. The I try not to be is unbreakable cruel. and split until the final five minutes, at which point it becomes glass. That's... See, okay, okay. Full disclosure, haven't seen glass. Paul, I saw unbreakable. I saw split. But Split got ruined for me, and I was really pissed off because someone spoiled the ending of Split, that it was an unbreakable thing, that's and not, I didn't know that. That's, that's not a, here's the thing. That's not a spoiler. That is... Uh, if it's you, kind so, of a spoiler. No, I mean, it's... Here's, here's, it's, it's not, it sucks that you know that, but the, uh, the movie, movie, the story that it tells it. has a beginning. So you haven't seen Split? No, I haven't seen Split. Okay, so here's the thing. Split is a movie that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, which has nothing to do with the the final little tag at the end, which is, hey, by the way, you remember that movie that you loved 16 years ago? Well, it takes place in the same universe. We'll see you next movie, folks. Bye! Like, that's all that is. It does not in any way ruin the movie for you. What ruins the movie for you is the next fucking movie. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I think Split's a good movie. It works on Split, its own. Split's a fucking great movie. Um, yeah, it works. It's, you know, it's... A fucking insult. Yeah, I've heard. That's why I haven't watched Glass. I, and funny enough, I own Glass on Blu-ray. I bought it when it came out because I was like... Then oh, you have this. a nice coaster for your Red Comet, sir. I buy too many movies. <laughs> that's the end of the. Uh, that's the moral of the story. I bought so many Criterion movies this sale. It's like oh, holy pathetic. shit! I did too. It was and I don't know why I kept buying them, but I, I, I just and weirdly, you know, I'm a genre guy, but I bought a lot of non-genre stuff. I just like stuff that I've heard about, stuff that Brian shit. Sauer has recommended. Um, you know, I. Brian Sauer is getting paid. You said what? Brian Sauer, God bless him. I hope he's getting paid by Criterion and and all of these fucking labels. Because by God, the one guy who will get me to buy something sight unseen is Brian. Uh, Brian Sauer, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast. I know you've been on the podcast. I wish I'd been on that podcast with you, Paul. I still kind of like, I'm shaking my fist at you right now for having Look, I didn't deserve that. I didn't earn it. Here's the thing. Here's Here's the thing, you totally did, sir, I'm, but... I, he is better than I. Let's put it that way. I he, got lucky. That, that, was, <laughs> that was a great I got time. very lucky, and he, for some reason, agreed to do that. He and uh, that was like a pie in the sky. Like, I DM'd him. I'm like, hey, <laughs> I'm some random guy from Twitter. Do you want to talk to me? And he was like, sure, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, okay, are you sure? You and like, he, you, know, he is. You, you had a fantastic conversation with him. You did a great job as host. All, all I'm saying is, like, anytime you post something, I'm like, anybody else can post like these massive, like, you know, shots of their collection or their mail days or stuff like that, right? And I'm just yeah. kind of like, oh, that's neat. Oh, I'll look at that. Oh, that's cool. Oh, I'll, I'll bet they enjoy that. Oh, I hope they do. Oh, that's kind of neat. That's cool. Anytime he posts something, I'm like, well, fuck it. I guess I got to buy it. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of it is when he posts shit, it's one movie. Like he doesn't do like exactly, here's exactly. movies I bought. You know, here's and and look, I am guilty of this too. So I'm not like shitting on people who post their mail halls or whatever it is. I think it's awesome that collectors want to share 
like what they bought. Like I think that's really cool. Like, and I actually I always like those. Yeah, I always like those tweets. But when Brian Sauer posts, he posts a single film, and I think he does that on purpose. I mean, my belief is that he he's somebody who loves like every movie that he loves. And that sounds redundant, but I don't think it is, you know, it's like if he loves a movie, he loves that movie and he wants that movie to get the attention it deserves. And the only way to do that is to talk about that movie. It can't be lumped in with another movie. Um, You know, do do you, are you part of a pure cinemas like Patreon at all? I know. Here's the thing. I have never done a Patreon in my life, but that is one. Oh, okay. I'm glad you reminded me of that because that is literally no, the and it's one not like podcast. And I meant to. I I even messaged you. Like, yeah, because you here's the thing. I think I think, I think, not, <laughs> I think Scream Addict not, has a Patreon. I swear to God, like, I didn't bring it up for that reason. No, the that's only that's something that uh Brad, who runs, he's like the producer of Scream Addicts. He's uh. He he has a Patreon for Scream Addicts. I don't know if y'all... I think we even dropped, like, trying to push that, like, early on. But I don't even know how that fucking works. So I remember after the uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson episode of Pure Cinema, I was like, you know what? I want to support these guys in a yeah. way... Because here's the thing. They never put... And, you know, maybe I'm going to burn myself here by saying this, but fucking, I'm going to go ahead and say it on air. Say it. They and I think I've told you this before too, like ages ago. Pure yeah. cinema is wonderful for any number of reasons, but they're great yeah. because they shine a light not only on the subjects that they choose initially, like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, right? But they also choose like those those movie pairings, which shine yeah. a light on movies that I would never otherwise fucking know about. And when they mention their Patreon, it's kind of like as a casual aside. And as a viewer, I do, or as a listener rather, I don't feel in any way guilted. You know, this is a free podcast. And yeah. they're offering that. But if you want to support, you can actually get some extra stuff. And here's here's how you can do it and blah, blah, blah. And I remember messaging you being like, you know what? What's I know you support them on Patreon. How does that work exactly? I was so turned off by the idea of supporting anybody on Patreon by this other podcast that I – here's the thing. I de- – and I'm not going to name it. Uh, if, fuck it. If you listen to it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and i love those guys i love yeah. those guys and i love their work I and, I, and i will be there with every fucking movie they make i love those guys but at around episode 200 or so it got so unbearable because ever the opening 10 minutes of every episode was guilting every single listener into supporting their patreon to the point where I was like, I don't want to fuck. I was out of work at the time anyway. I was living off of like savings. And I was like, I don't want to attach my card to something like, you know, uh, where there's like a monthly fucking fee. I'm sorry or whatever. But every episode was just like, well, you know, it, it's only the true fans that listen to the show that support us on Patreon. And if you don't, well, guess you're not really a fan you know and to the point where i was just kind of like at around uh fucking episode 200 i was just kind of like you know what i feel it's such a fucking drag to listen to the show anymore where i feel like shit for the first 10 minutes and then i just i continue feeling that way for the next two hours of their fucking interview or whatever so i just drop that podcast but what i love about pure cinema and brian sauer and elric kane like what they do is just kind of like hey 
we're just going to keep doing this awesome thing or whatever. And if you want to support us, cool. If not cool, that's fine. It's, it's here, you know, whatever. And so now I really want to, you know, I, I want to do the Patreon yeah. thing for cinema and I think I'm going to, and I can't wait to catch up on all their, their hangout episodes and all of that. I just, I just need to do it. And I think I'm probably going to, I'm not going to do it tonight, Paul, because I don't trust myself with my card, and my phone right now, but tomorrow morning, by God, I'm, I'm going to sign up. So no. And I, I, dude, I totally get it. Um, and look, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's, you can't, you can't give money to everything, right? Like we all have a budget. We all have so much that we can give, um, pure cinema from the moment it launched. Um, it was incredibly important to me. Um, I remember the first episode because I was a fan of Elric from killer POV and when he started uh, Pure Cinema, they talked about it and kind of like launched with Brian Sauer. And I had actually read some of Brian Sauer's blog, um, and he had been on Killer POV. And uh, so they did uh, Pure Cinema, and they did that for maybe about a year, or maybe like close to a year. And then they launched the Patreon. And I remember the first episode they announced the uh, Patreon on, and when it launched... And the second they announced it, um, I went over there and I, I subscribed and, you know, and I'm not saying like, and again, like I I totally get it. Like paying money into something. It's kind of like when you listen to, um, NPR, I don't know if you listen to NPR at all, like the public radio, um, and they kind of do those drives and you're like, ah, oh, can I afford it? You know, but I listen to this, should I pay for it? But with something like Pure cinema where I got a lot from it, I was like, I have no issue giving these guys $5 a month or whatever it is. And I subscribe to a couple different podcasts. Um, right, Paul, should I do, should, I'm actually on the page. I'm listening to you, but I am, I, I actually pulled up Pure cinema. I, I pulled up should. their Patreon. Uh, there's the handshake <laughs> for dollar a month. There's the Joe Don, which fucking love that title for five bucks a month there's the gold rush for 200 i am not brian elric i love you i can't do 200 dollars a month for the gold rush i just fucking can't uh so i guess i I do five bucks five bucks a month okay i'm joining i'm joining right now on air on this episode i am doing that and and you know what jinx i think you made a great decision because the most recent uh so they do hangouts now and the most recent one for august is called new to me and all it is is like a two hour episode where they just watch like movies they haven't seen and they just oh, talk great. about them. And I'm telling you, bud, like you will fucking love it. Um, but anyway, the reason I'm telling this story isn't to like pat myself on the back for subscribing and like paying the money. It's because when I talked to Brian um, and and when we actually interacted together, one of the things he said was he actually was like, hey, man, um, you know, you've been a big supporter of the show since the beginning. I remember that you joined our Patreon really early on. Like he he actually like gives a shit about his fans and he pays attention to what they do. And he remembered that, like, I joined the Patreon early. Like he, he's like, you've, you've given us a lot of money. You've given us a lot of time. Like it means something to him. This is not a, you know, Oh, here's my Patreon sign up. Like they actually digest 
what this is and appreciate what it is and really try to give their fans something of value. So for me, the reason I recommend doing it is, you know, these are guys that deserve it. There's a lot of people in the entertainment industry that take our money and don't deserve it. Um, So whenever I see someone that does deserve it, um, I want to elevate them and try to get as many fans in their camp as possible. Um, And I cannot tell you how many wonderful movies they've pointed me to that I never, ever would have seen, (laughs) you know, especially like this criterion sale. I've bought so many recommendations like movies I had never fucking heard of that Brian talked about, or, you know, he's had guests on his show talk about. um, And I just go out and buy those movies sight unseen based on that recommendation. And everyone I've watched has been a delight. So anyway, I'm sorry if I am falling short on this conversation because I'm actually in the process. I feel, I feel like I might be over, or rambling. Maybe I apologize. No, I'm, a- I'm, I'm finishing up my Patreon setup here, sir. So uh, I'm Joe donning it up here. Um, Yay! Yeah. So no, I know what you're talking about. I love those uh, episodes. Like you know, and plus, it, it's funny that there are like two arms to pure cinema. Like on one side is Shockwaves with Elric, and on the other side is uh, just the discs. Which is fucking great. I love just the discs, man. I, oh, I hope someday. And look, okay. (laughs) Full disclosure. I I would murder to be on that show. So when I I don't want to be the guy who just like throw my hand up and be like, hey, would you, would you please invite me on? Like, okay, Jinx, maybe you can give me some advice. I know we're like a recording on air that people are going to hear this. But when I talked to Brian for Scream Addicts, he actually said he'd be, really happy to have me on for a stacks episode he's like oh you should totally come on for a stacks episode and i was like yeah that'd be great and i'm like do i reach back out so i can't i don't want to be that guy who ever told me throws my hand up because i don't think i'm worthy at all ever of like being on do i be do i be weird and be like hey remember that time you said i should be on an episode like (laughs) you know what i mean but it's like (laughs) we we did talk about it but anyway no i mean i and i don't hold that against him at all because i know he's like crazy busy and he has like real actual people who have something to say on his shows one day paul we will be actual people i don't know when but one day but anyway uh he did mention that someday i could come on on a on a you know random stack episode because he knows i'm a collector and that i buy a lot of movies and he likes my taste in film so i've been thinking recently about like reaching out to him be like hey reminder if you ever need a guest (laughs) but maybe once the uh hammer stuff starts up i'll uh i'll reach on out (laughs) all right so paul Paul, I got to tell you, we are currently at, let me see here, we are at, (laughs) we're at two hours and 21 minutes. So I tell you what, let's go ahead and call host both of our picks. Let's do one pick each of what we've seen recently, and then we're going to go ahead and wrap up before my, uh, my laptop is dying and I'm not near a power source. So uh, we'll we'll do one pick each and then we're, uh, we're going to call it a night. So Paul, we both love toast. What else have you seen recently that you would like to tell people about? Holy shit. You got to choose one movie. 
One this, uh, this being stream addicts, it's got to be genre. You're hitting me with this out of nowhere. Okay, all right. Ah. Got my pick. Are you ready? Go. The mystery of the wax museum. Oh, I want to see that. I just got it on the Warner Archive sale, but I'm going to do a marathon. A uh, mystery of the wax museum, House of Wax, Wax Mask, and uh, fucking out House of Wax 2005. But I have not seen that first movie yet. So please tell me, Paul, was my money misspent? It is phenomenal. Um, yes. And I'll tell you, as someone who's favorite one of their okay my favorite actor of all time full disclosure is vincent price um i love vincent price every movie he ever appeared in he gave it 110 percent. didn't matter what the movie was um and house of wax is one of his best movies um forget about all the stupid 3d gimmicks the movie has right like a guy with a yo-yo throwing it at the screen like all that shit forget about all that um it plays with depth incredibly well which Um, is funny considering that the guy who directed it only had one eye it is very funny and i actually think that lended to it because like so for example i think some of the best 3d in the movie is the opening credits when it's raining and you're just seeing city streets and you're seeing like streets winding behind other streets and rows of, you know, apartments kind of leading up to a back street and lights behind that lighting the building. It's literally just a very static opening credit sequence with rain that's establishing depth of field. Um, and I think that was a directorial choice that really sets the viewer up for what the 3D is going to accomplish. Um, the fire is amazing. Anyway, I love House of Wax. I'm not talking about House of Wax, but I love that movie. <laughs> um, Mystery at the Wax Museum basically plays like a 1933 version of that film. Um, it's not in 3D, but it follows an incredibly similar trajectory with almost the same plot and almost the same final act. Um, And it's very well made. It's very creepy and it's incredibly ahead of its time for the horror films that were being made in the early thirties. When you look at a movie like Dracula or Bride of Frankenstein, which are obviously revered classics. This movie was much more modern compared to those um, and really strikes um, a punch that you didn't see until kind of the Hammer era um, where you have uh, sort of someone who's, you know, had something bad happen to them coming back from it um, using their artistic skill with wax to sort of mask themselves and create an environment where they can get away with the, the murderous things they're carrying out. Um, it was very dark. It's surprising. It got, a, they were able to get away with it at the time, but it was a pre-code film. You know, it was before the McCarthy area. And um Anyway, it's just, it's a fantastic film. If you get the chance, Warner Archive has put out a, like, ludicrously impressive uh, restoration of the film. And anyway, if you like House of Wax, it is really something you need to see. 
I can't wait. I'm going to marathon all of those, which, as I understand it, they all uh, sort of stem from the same source material, which I can't wait to, uh, which I don't think is available anywhere. But uh, there's like a short story that inspired Mystery of the Wax Museum, House of Wax, Wax Mask, and uh, in a way, House of Wax 2005. But let's be honest, House of Wax 2005 is a fucking uh, tourist trap remake. So Yeah, I, I, I actually don't think... Um... So, and I, not to be, uh, I don't want to be a dissenter at all. I, I like House of Wax 2005, but yes, it's nothing like those other films. And I like them better. Like, I know House of Wax 2005 is gaining a lot of, like, um, traction. And I think it's good. I think it's a really fun mid-2000s movie, but it's not as good as House of Wax, the original. Not no, like, no, no. even. And it's a different movie. It's just a different thing. And it's much, yeah, it's much more tourist. It's much more, and, it, and the movie itself even feels more like a full moon horror movie than a, you know, old Warner Brothers joint or anything like that. <laughs> Very true. All right. My laptop is about to die, Paul. So I'm going to try and finish up here quickly with my choice. Sorry. I just want to say that on Shudder, I, um, I recently discovered something that I have seen people talk about on Twitter. And people I, whose opinions I trust, and everyone brings this movie up, and I just couldn't see it. Paul, every time I watch a trailer to this movie, every time I would see somebody rant and rave about it, I would be like, am I missing something? And I would watch the trailer and be like, no, I don't, I don't think so. You know, it looked cheap. It looked bad. It looked like every mid-aughts shitty found footage movie that you've ever seen that turned you off of that subgenre in the first place, post-Blair Witch, right? But one night, for the hell of it, probably at about 11 p.m., I clicked over to Shutter. didn't see anything that jumped out at me uh, that I hadn't already seen. And I clicked on Hell House LLC. Oh, good movie. Paul, that movie, movie. knocked me on my ass, one. So and good. two, I think it is the second best found footage movie I have ever seen beyond the first Blair Witch Project. It was so uh, better than Paranormal Activity, better than any other found footage movie I've seen other than Blair Witch. Uh, it, It was fucking fantastic. It is a movie that takes its scares very seriously, but it also manages to build really interesting characters and an interesting setup. And also it hints at a mythology in that first film but yeah. doesn't overload you with it to the point where it feels fake. You you are in the same position as the characters. You come into the space, you understand that there's stuff that has gone on, and then things happen to you. And that's what happens to the characters. And they have some understanding of what the backstory was, but they don't have everything, just like you, the viewer. And I think that's such a smart approach. Now, I was so jazzed about that first movie that I stayed up until like, I want to say like three thirty, four o'clock that night watching the sequels. <laughs> now here's the thing. The sequels are nowhere near as good, but I do think the sequels have worth. And I do think as a trilogy, as a complete story that hell house LLC is pretty fucking fantastic. I love where it goes. I love the big swings that it takes to let me, de- to, here's the thing. Everyone hates two. 
Everyone, when I mentioned, it's probably one of the most popular tweets I've ever sent out, the fact that I was even watching Hell House LLC. I saw and that. You had a it, lot of love on that tweet. It was ridiculous. I was like, shit. Really? <laughs> and Shudder didn't even retweet it. Fuck those guys. But, like, everybody. I figured they was did like, because it was, it was very big, man. I was proud of you. <laughs> but, like, but everyone, here's the thing. Everyone said the exact same thing. Well, this movie is a masterpiece. It's a shame the sequel is so bad. But wait until you get the third one. The, th- the third one is still pretty good. You know, the third one rounds stuff out. You just got to get through that second one, pal. You know, and I was like, oh, shit. Like, well, let's see. And I watched the second one. And here's the thing. I think the first 90% of Hell House LLC 2, which I think is called the Abaddon Hotel. Yeah. I think the first 90% of that movie is fucking great i think it is just as effective as the first movie when it comes to the scares i think it is just as interesting when it comes to the characters uh the lead guy the guy who and here's what i love about it it's so subtle in its own way it doesn't tell you that he's in love with the woman who disappeared at the end of the first movie they just play it on his reactions every time they say her name and they never play it for too long they never beat you over the head with it but it's just enough just enough to know right that that's why he would bother going back in that fucking place to begin with because why else would somebody right but no it it takes a motivator like love to throw yourself back into the bowels of hell right and that's what that guy does and the thing that kills the second movie is the final 10 minutes when you have the villain show up and give this extended monologue now. God bless the actor who played that role because he gives it his all. That guy nailed every moment of yes. it was just but it was just a bad choice. It's it's like if you got to the end of the Blitter Witch project for everything that it was and as effective as it was. And at the end of it, instead of having uh, Mike stand in the corner, you had the witch come out and the witch is like, hi, I'm the Blair witch. And this is why I've done fucking everything that I've done up until this point. That's what the end of hell house two is like. Yeah. It it really, it really felt like it was talking down to the audience. It was kind of like, Hey guys, just so you know, here's why you're feeling what you're feeling. And here's what (laughs) your motivations are. And everything that you might have imagined isn't true. And uh, let me reiterate it again, because you may not have understood it the first time. It just, it felt very pandering. Yeah. Oh, totally. totally. Very forced. And it It, kind of put a bad taste. I mean, uh, if a movie ends poorly, it really kind of can kill the whole movie. You know, it's like I was talking about with the den. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the bulk of the movie. It fucking nails it. And then in the final stretch, they just shit the bed. And you know, all of that stuff at the end of hell house two is exposition that could have been doled out in really subtle ways. in the next movie, which overall, here's the crazy thing about the third movie. Three's okay. I I don't mind. Three. three. No, three. Three's fine. Three does a better job <laughs> at storytelling yeah. than the than two, and you but, get you get that nice ending in three. Yeah, and where it and sort it of takes, wraps everything up. Takes big swings with the mythology, but yeah. it's not even remotely scary. It's nowhere near no, as scary as two. No. So one is where it's at. One is one, what it's all about. One nails both. One nails story, 
and one nails that, the and scare. I think that's the thing is that one is so good because I agree with you. I don't think it's the best found footage movie, and it may not because for me, like I kind of agree that like or uh, um, Blair Witch is sort of where it's at. Lake Mungo is kind of my second favorite. Lake um, Mungo is damn good. Yeah, that's like my number two. And then I start looking at things like like uh, Hell House. But um, I think Hell House LLC does everything you said it did. Like it, it manages to suggest enough story and world building to make it terrifying, but not over-explore it too much while at the same time earning every little jump scare it has and it has a ton of jump scares um where you know most of those movies the jump scares feel really forced so i i really appreciate and and there's a reason for all the different media you know in like or uh i keep saying like rungo in hell house there's like <laughs> a, like all kinds of different media sources but it really earns why they're all there and how it's using it and when you see it. So it just, it feels I, really natural. And I appreciate the, you know, somebody mentioned this on Twitter. They were like, yeah, it's a good movie. And I disagree with them, by the way. And I'll make this my final note on the movie. But they said basically like, yeah, the movie's pretty good. But the ghouls, the demons, the ghosts, whatever the hell they are, they look like shit, right? They look basic. They look like there's just simple makeup, and uh, you can tell it's a low-budget movie whenever they show up. I think that's why they're so effective in the first movie. It is the difference to me between George Romero's Night of the Living Dead and Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead. I love Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead, but I hate the fact that every zombie has to be an effect, has to be its own hero zombie in its own way. It has to have like this super crazy makeup on it. And what makes Hell House LLC so effective for me is the fact that it's so underplayed, that it is a simple pale makeup, that it is simply contacts. It makes it feel more real to me than if they had gone crazy and CG makeup and all sorts of stupid stuff with it. I love the fact that it feels like these people just died and they have hung around the hotel to creep people out. I, I think that I don't think that's a weakness of the movie. I think it's a strength. Yeah, I would agree. All right, Paul, we we have talked now for damn near. We've talked for over two and a half hours, sir. I have had a blast, but my laptop has had enough, I'm afraid. Uh, and my my liver has to, I got to tell you, with all these red comments, so I'm going to have to sign off. But, sir. Thank you so much for co-hosting the second episode of Getting Hammered with Hammer. I can't wait until we dive into Revenge of Frankenstein, even though I'm a little scared about whatever your uh, drink choice is going to be. Again, where can folks find you at online? Uh, I am at PaulIsGreat2000 on Twitter. And I am at Jinx1981, and you can find the show's Twitter at at ScreamAddicts1981. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We appreciate your listening to our commentary and maybe our rambling. Let us know if this was uh, warranted, or uh, let us know if you tuned out about an hour and a half in. We would very much like to know one way or the other. Otherwise, thanks so much, folks. We'll see you next time.